Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Loxdala Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And that's that's finally true. We're <laughs> actually putting Loxdala Saga on trial. It's yeah. No, we, we've got some beefy sagas still to come, but this, this has been a big one. Um, and we kept getting mm-hmm. distracted with one thing and another, so that we actually did break the one-year mark on this saga. Well, I mean, part of the problem has been getting you to stay in one place. Oh. Uh, you went off to Iceland again last month, if I, I recall. I did. I was there for the Nordic Network on Disability Research Conference uh, on a panel organized by Jov Tarash. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was really envious. Uh, how'd it go? It was a, a great panel, actually. Uh, most of the conference wasn't about literary studies. So we were a smaller group within the crowd, but the papers were all top-notch. And no one seemed to notice that I'd snuck into the room, so the illusion of quality was maintained. Well, that, that's wonderful. I was telling my father-in-law about that conference, actually, mm-hmm. the Disability Studies Conference, and he could not get his head around the idea that enough people would meet to talk about something like that. It was quite a large conference. I mean, it's a, you know... I'm sure a, that's what I was... I, especially in modern disability studies, it's a big field. You know, it's a... Only our exactly. corner of it is relatively small. Uh, well, that's a relief. Yeah, I know. I uh, and I also got to take a walk around Lagerness with uh, Stefan, one of our listeners, who gave me some sage advice about picking a Thingman from this saga. Well, it, uh, really? Mm-hmm. So uh, so you're letting your uh, listeners pick the Thingman now? Hey, when, they, when, they're, when they're smarter about it than I would be, yes, I absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> all uh, right, all right. I'll, I'll be curious to hear what Stefan had to uh, say about all that. Yeah, well, you will get to find out. Uh, I also got to speak with mm-hmm. Oder from the uh, Ormstunger pod- podcast. Uh, he was a great host. That's right, And yeah. he has a much nicer recording studio than we do, Andy. Oh, you don't like your house? Uh, no, I don't like my my TV room that I record in, and the whatever it is hallway <laughs> with a fish tank that you record in. Is that uh, more or less accurate? No, this is not a hallway. This is my home office. But it it happens to also, you know, it's like an open plan. So the the hallway is right there, and the living room's right there. Mm-hmm. Not ideal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, so shout out to Stefan and other Tuckfitterath Bildmer. All right. Well, welcome back. And welcome back, everyone, to Laxdala Saga for one final time. Mm. I imagine everyone's ready to be done with this one after a year or so. Do you have uh, anything special to toast the occasion? <laughs> well, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I'm drinking water tonight. Oh, <laughs> but maybe later I'll have a Manhattan. That's maybe terrible. later, oh, as we get goodness. deeper in. How about you? What are you, What are you drinking, John? You know, I've, I've got myself a, a lovely, a local beer, a, a grim double negative. Imperial Stout, ah, which I put aside oh, for finishing this saga some time ago. An Imperial Stout is a great idea. I have, mm-hmm. I also have a double IPA that I could crack open. I mean, uh, Murphy's from Parish. Uh, maybe I should go get that. Look, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mm. a bad influence on you here, but I don't know why you would bother to hydrate it is before a, this. It's a spe- you, hold on. It's a special occasion. I'll be right back. <laughs> Now comes the part of the saga where I sit silently and enjoy a few sips of my beer while Andy wanders around his house looking for a drink. For those of you who haven't experienced this before, uh, this is what usually happens when Andy is uh, introduced to a new idea. It seeps into his brain uh, because Andy's brain has many good qualities and frankly a few poor ones. But one of its more interesting qualities is that he is extremely permeable to new ideas and to influences. If you ever want to be a bad influence on Andy, oh, it's, hey, John. hi, Andy. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Good. What you talking about? Nothing. Just cool. You know, just 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 shooting the breeze. I'm gonna taste my beer now. Excellent. 
Mm. You know what? That was a really good idea, John. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> I, I convince you to drink when you don't want to. Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. So if we're both uh, if we're both sufficiently libated, uh, well, let's dig in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so why don't we start with a few uh, quick statistics, if you don't mind? Statistics. Yes. Yeah. From you. Well, unless you prepared some, uh, we're the only three people here. <laughs> see, see, that's that's kind of my concern right there. <laughs> but seriously, folks, uh, I do have some stats for us that are, I, I, they're interesting. Interesting to whom? Well, weirdos mostly, but I find oh. it interesting too. <laughs> Fascinating <laughs> that you think those are two different categories. Uh, am I, I classed with the weirdos? Well, I mean, that's for you to decide. Personally, I have you in a different category altogether. Okay. Uh, somehow I suspect I'd be happier among the oddballs, but okay. Uh, let's go. <laughs> what kind of statistics do you have prepared? Well, uh, let's start with this. We started Lax Styler Saga in April of 2022. Back when the world was young. Yes. I believe that episode was posted on April 16th, and this mm-hmm. Judgment episode is likely to be posted on June 5th, 2023. Huh. Uh, we're recording it at the end of May, though. Yes, but it's the end of May, and you take forever to send me your files. <laughs> I'll have this all edited and put together by June 5th, at which point we will have produced 15 episodes on Lax Saga. Now, we've definitely done more than 15 episodes in the last year. Well, yes, I'm not counting the saga briefs or the holiday special. Oh, okay, but you're including the judgment episode we haven't actually recorded yet. Yes, for the purposes of this conversation, okay. uh, yes. And if this Judgment episode goes up on June 5th, as we predict it will, then the Earth will have turned all the way around roughly 409 times since we posted the first what? episode on Lakshada Saga. You you could just say it's been 409 days. I could say that, but it would be less fun and less mystical. Okay. Uh, so we kept to just about one episode a month on topic. Give or take. That's not it's not too bad. Well, not at all, no. Uh, we even got uh, two a month in once or twice, mm-hmm. uh, which allowed us to have a couple months where we didn't post an episode on Lex Saga. Uh, but not counting this Judgment episode, I would like you to mm-hmm. guess how long we ended up talking about Lex Saga in that time. So the total combined times of all the Lex Saga episodes. Uh, yeah, yes. Not counting this one, yes. I mean, it's, it's a lot. Um, I'm going to say 26 and a half hours. 26 and a half hours. Yep. Uh, you're cl- I mean, it's in the 20s. You're mm-hmm. right. Uh, it was a total of 1,370 minutes. <laughs> That's, so you decided to go with minutes. <laughs> Well, if you want to go with hours, it was 22 hours, 50 minutes, and 42 seconds. Wow. According to my rough calculation done over lunch uh-huh. uh, one day. So we were we were so four hours more efficient than I thought we were. Yeah, we were four hours more efficient. I like that. Good That's for a good us. way to think about it. Now, Good for us. Now, here's the question. Do you think that we talked about Lackstyler Saga for more or less time than we did Ale Saga? Oh my gosh. Um, so let's see. We did more. I believe we did more episodes on Ale Saga, but I'm also pretty sure they were shorter episodes. So I'm going to say. Mm, I'm going to say we did uh, slightly less on Ale Saga. 
slightly less on the Hail Saga. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, we talked about Ale Saga across 15 summary episodes, Not no judgment included mm-hmm. in this calculation, for 1,431 minutes. Oh, more. Oh, geez. More. That's right. More. So, yes, uh, 1,431 minutes, which is roughly equivalent to 23 hours and 51 minutes. Hmm. Again, if my if you want to trust my math, which I mean, I welcome. We're off on a very rickety limb here, but (laughs) we might as well keep going. In all honesty, we are because it doesn't divide up evenly. You got to go by sixties, and that screws it all up for me. Sure. Now, other people might say see where that would be hard hard. because you run out of fingers long before that. (laughs) Well, for me, it was quite the challenge, but uh, I think. I think I got it. Now, uh, by comparison, we spent 11 episodes on Njal's Saga across 10 months, 15 episodes on Ale Saga across 12 months, mm-hmm. and 14 episodes on Lockstyla across 14 months. So <laughs> in the nearly 10 years we've been doing this podcast, John, we have spent three years, roughly a third of the lifespan of this podcast, talking about just three sagas. Wait. So that's not my takeaway. My takeaway is Nyal Saga is the longest of those three by a substantial amount, and we spent the fewest mm-hmm. episodes on it. And the least amount of time. <laughs> we we only spent uh, about 990 minutes on Nyal, which is... Wow. It's just 16 and a half hours. Should we go back and do it again? <laughs> uh, no. No, we should not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't even mention Greta's Saga. Uh, which is another one of the major sagas we've covered. I think that Greta's Saga might actually be longer than Lockstyle Saga. Is that right? Yeah, it is, by, but not by much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't forget it. I've got the info right here on my little spreadsheet as well. Uh, we spent four episodes reviewing <laughs> Greta's Saga, only four, between July and October of 2015. Mm-hmm. And those four episodes came to 337 minutes or if you like hours, five hours and 37 minutes. Okay, so... Not much for a lengthy wow. saga. Yeah. Okay, so Greta and y'all really got the shaft from us in terms of coverage. I disagree. Uh, I think that we were pretty thorough on y'all saga, and we condensed Greta only where it was repeating the same basic sequence of events over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I think both got treated pretty fairly by us. It's our biggest saga that I'm sorry for. Are you, does that mean you're finally agreeing we need to go back and redo it? No. No, not really. I, I would prefer to move forward rather than backward. Okay, well, speaking of which, enough of your silly statistics. It's time to put Lockstyle Saga on trial. Now, mm. it's uh, it's been a tick of the clock since we last did a Judgment episode. Um, you want to remind us of exactly what it is we're doing here? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll just do all the work around here while some people are off hobnobbing in Reykjavik. Uh, wow. And I'm doing the statistics. I'm doing, like, what is, what is it you do here, John? I bring personality, Andy. That's what oh, I Oh, you're do. a people person. That's, that's <laughs> the, I, I'm good with people. So uh, now that we have finished reviewing the saga, we are going to judge it using our seven categories, including best bloodshed, body count, nicknames, notable witticisms, outlaws, thingmen, and then... Our final rating. And, John, uh, I don't have any more statistics or any more banter. Do you want to just dive in now? (laughs) Let's go. All right. Best Bloodshed. So, So in this first category, we're looking at the moments of violence that set this saga apart. 
That's right. No boring old stabbings or assassinations here. Mm. We're awarding points for the unusual, the creative, and the artistic. The artistic murders? Sure. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some. But, uh, uh-huh. you true. know, it could also be a moment of non-lethal violence sometimes, a bruising assault, even a, a terrible magical attack. Or a hurtful comment. I mean, if we're really, not usually, but if we're if we're really <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel, sometimes. I, I just wanted to know there was a line there somewhere. Uh, so, where should we begin? Well, uh, as is our tradition, I would like to highlight a few interesting candidates that I don't think we should vote for. Non-candidates. Uh, mm-hmm. We might want to revisit our traditions, Sandy. This sounds like kind of a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, not at all. I assure you these are good. Uh-huh. But I think you'll see very quickly why I won't be voting for any of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm intrigued and also a little concerned. All right. Well, my first candidate, is, or my first non-candidate, excuse me, <laughs> is Vigdis, the wife of Thor the Gothi. And she's also a kinswoman of your thingman, uh, Thor Bellower. You remember Absolutely. him? Oh, I remember Mm-hmm. Well, early on in the saga, she supports her kinsman Thorolf after he kills Hall, the brother of Ingjold the Gothi, in a petty dispute over fish. It was one of those kind of weird digressions mm-hmm. that uh, I think you weren't really a fan of. Right. Well, Thorolf hides in the home of Vigdis and Thor Gothi, though Thor is none too pleased harboring a man who killed Ingjold's brother. And when Ingjold comes around to search the property, he senses that Thor Gothi might be able to help him uncover the fugitive Thorolf. And sure enough, Thor Gothi is easily bought with a pouch full of silver. But Vigdis outsmarts them both and helps Thorolf to flee to safety. And when Ingjold finally realizes that he's been duped, he demands the return of his silver. And so Vigdis goes in and she takes the silver from Thor's chest. She marches out to Ingjold. And just as he reaches out to take the pouch from her, he, she swings it forcefully up into his face, causing his <laughs> nose to bleed. She curses him and then tells him that he'll never see his money again and shoes him off the property. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember this episode. Uh, it was a somewhat lengthy digression away from the main action of the story, as I recall. That's that's right, yes. But it does at least establish Thor Gothi's background and the reason why he might want to foster Olaf Peacock. Um, and I think that's why it's in the narrative. But yes. Sure. Now, let me guess why you don't want to include this in Among the Candidates. Mm. Uh, well, by all means. I suspect you don't want this one to win because we already saw this exact same thing happen in Gisli Saga. When yes. Alf Vestin's daughter, Gisli's wife, uh, refused Eolf's offer of silver to reveal Gisli's location. Right? She smashed Eolf in the face with that purse full of silver and gave him a bloody nose. And she also cursed him mm-hmm. and told him to get lost. Exactly. And let's face it, John, Alf did it better than Vigdis. True, but Alf also didn't win Best Bloodshed in Gisli's saga. Uh, so maybe this trope deserves a chance in this saga? I mean, perhaps, and I'll I'll say King in Green on our Discord page recommended this one for Best Bloodshed, mm-hmm. but it would be a shame to give the award to Vigdis when Alv didn't get it for the same thing. I find that to be specious reasoning, but I'll accept it because I know we have good candidates coming. Good. All right. Second one. Uh, speaking of rehashing familiar tropes, I also like the death of Thorgil's Hotlison. Oh, uh, okay, yes. This is the one where he's beheaded by Audgisl as he counts out the silver to pay compensation. Yes, but uh, as we mentioned at the time, mm-hmm. uh, we saw that same scene done better in Njall Saga by Kaori Samundersen. 
uh, my thingman. Another example of something we've seen before, John, and I'm not voting for it, but I like it. Yeah, I I am on your side with the logic, but I can't help but feel like you or we are being a little harsh here. Because mm-hmm. honestly, who's to say the Lockstyle version of these tropes didn't come first? I mean, that's a good question. It, but it doesn't matter to me. They're done better <laughs> okay. in other sagas, so they aren't viable candidates here. And I have one more, though this one, I'll be honest, pains me to include in the excluded candidates. Okay. Well, if you're going with best bloodsheds we've seen before, I'm going to guess I know which one you're going to mention. Is it uh, okay. uh, Al, the Breaches Al, stabbing her ex-husband Thor than Gunnison? Yes. Yes, it is. Well well done. Well done. Uh, Though I don't care for your use of her nickname there. It's hurtful. Oh, yes. I I think at that point we we know that she has embraced the name and made it her own. I I suppose that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, but Al's stabbing of Thor the Gunnarsson feels very similar to Gisli's clandestine attack on his brother-in-law Thorgrim, doesn't it? Well, yes. Or, I mean... Which in its, in its turn is an homage or a parody almost of the attack on Gisli's brother-in-law, Vest Vestens, in a year earlier. I suppose, yeah. Uh, now, Alf doesn't kill Thorth in the way that Gisli uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> kills Thorgrim, but her approach to the farm, her effort to identify Thorth specifically, and her escape after slashing his arm and chest, well, mm-hmm. they're all very much in line with what we've already seen in Gisli's saga. I guess that's reasonable. Uh, it's not fair, but I tend to agree that each of these th- scenes are done better the first time we saw them in other sagas. And uh, note that Gizli saga is coming up repeatedly here. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Well, maybe one day you'll talk about that. But I think, like, <laughs> not including this one is going to be disappointing to some. Like mm. uh, like me. <laughs> well, Gunnar Unhappy on Discord recommended this one mm-hmm. uh, in his discussion of candidates, um, and several people agreed that this is a great uh, a great moment. I mean, I look, uh, Gunnar, I'm on your side here, um, but I guess this is just this is exactly why you're unhappy, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and it it hurts me to let someone like uh, Breaches Out go uh, because if we covered this saga back toward the beginning, she might have been a contender. For sure, but absolutely. The problem, I think the problem here is that Lockstyle Saga, to some degree, is going to suffer, or at least individual moments are going to suffer, because we're more than 30 sagas in. And at this point, yeah. novelty counts for a lot. Right? Uh, yes, things that we've seen before, justly or not, right? we're going to regard as being kind of the, the originators of a motif. So even mm-hmm. though we might think something like uh, Kjartan and Botley's deaths are the most important acts of violence in the saga... There's nothing especially unusual about them. And in a saga where there are multiple unique deaths or near deaths, we had to put those aside as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, I'm still hesitant to dismiss Breaches Out with uh, Thorgill's Invictus here. The Breaches Out scene is at least slightly more nuanced than just a repeat of the same thing we saw in Gisli's saga. Why is that? Because, uh, Because this is a woman attacking a man with a sword? I mean, it's a it's a woman who has taken a sword and has taken men's clothing in order to avenge a slight against her honor. I mean, that's got to be worth something. I you're not wrong. I mean, Alf putting on the breeches she's accused of wearing, and mm-hmm. then avenging the insult to her honor by attacking her ex husband. That is definitely the stuff of best bloodshed. Oh wait a minute, are you coming around? You want to include it now? 
Yeah. Yeah, yes I do. <laughs> this is no longer a non-candidate. Excellent. We've it's got our candidate. first candidate. <laughs> Long way around. Uh, all right. <laughs> it is a good one. Uh probably won't win, but it's good. It's oh. good and it's worthy of inclusion. See, you're still putting your thumb on the scales, but I'm glad she's at least being included. Uh, the ball because is rolling at last. I, yeah, you know. All right, so I've got another fun candidate from early mm-hmm. in the saga that we need to consider. I think it's one of the earliest ones here. Um, this one isn't heavy on the bloodshed, but it's a great moment all the same. Yeah, so there isn't that much bloodshed early in this saga. Uh, so I'm going to assume... I'm going to assume you're talking about Yorin and Melkorka, but there are other candidates that are possible. You're a regular Punxsutawney John. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, as you know, there's no love lost between Huskell's really, wife, Nostradamus and... is just sitting there, and you went with Punxsutawney John. Oh. Well, in my head, I had prognosticator of prognosticators, <laughs> is what I was going to say. And then I just decided to go with Punxsutawney uh, John. I, uh, but you're right. You are a Nostradamus. <laughs> So, as you know, there's no love lost between Hoskold's wife, Joran, and his concubine, Melkorka, the Irish princess. But Hoskold tried to play off the surprise purchase of this slave woman as a gift to Joran to make her life on the farm a bit easier. So, one night, when Melkorka's helping Joran get ready for bed by taking off her shoes and socks, the kettle finally boils over. Joran picks up her dirty socks from the floor and hits Melkorka in the face with them. Well, Melkorka doesn't like that, so she strikes back quickly, <laughs> popping Yorin in the nose with her fist. Uh-huh. And Hoskold has to rush in and pull these women apart. And as the saga tells us, after that, he had Melkorka move to another farm further up the valley. That's a, It's a great scene. Um, but I'm, yeah. I'm curious, what exactly are you nominating here? Is it uh, Yorin huh. for the sock slap or Melkorka for the quick right to Yorin's nose? <laughs> well... As much as I love a good disrespectful sock slap, I am uh, I'm nominating <laughs> Melkorka for punching Yorin. You know, I'm I'm thinking about this now, and I'm wondering how many instances in the sagas there are of women punching people in the nose as an act of violence. We we talked about I mean, the, the different times women have like hit men with uh, purses of silver. Yeah, with an object. Their yeah, nose. that's what I'm thinking. Right, and then this as well. Right, I don't. I'm trying to think if there are any instances. There aren't that many instances of men hitting people in the nose. I wonder if this is something that was perceived as a sort of, for whatever reason, a specifically sort of female attack tactic. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm sure men did hit each other in the nose, but oh, uh, I'm sure they usually did, in the sagas they have axes in their hands right. and swords and spears and other things. Right, as a literary device, I'm wondering if this is sort of uh, uh, a motif that is considered to be specific to sort of female aggression. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, all yeah. right. Uh, I mean, have we seen many women fighting against other women physically? No. Yeah. No. Saga? This is that. I mean, that to me is why this is a great candidate, right? Is that it's, I mean, a, it's a real very outlier rare right? example of I mean, we yeah. said you know we like the unique, and there's not a lot that's more unique than two women hauling off on each other in the saga. This is not a very common occurrence. That's right. Especially, like, uh, the, the disrespect of being hit with a sock is... Yeah, I mean, yeah. That no, you, in itself is, is a pretty cool moment. And then yeah, to yeah. follow that up with the, your slave punching you in the face. I mean, but you have to, you have to kind a farm of feel for Melkorka here. I mean, that's that's oh, a lot sure. to put up with. <laughs> After all Melkorka's already put up with. Yeah, you can no You kidding. can understand why. Right. You know? Right, it's finally someone she can punch. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, excellent. All right. Uh, now let's talk about something a little more murdery. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry there weren't horrifying wounds and splashes of blood in the sock fight, but there was okay. a drip from the it's nose. Okay. You, you did know. your best. Now, my first candidate <laughs> comes from close to the middle of the saga. It's in chapter 35 when we're told that a Hebridean okay. family has immigrated to Iceland. Oh, yeah. Uh, a married couple, uh, Kotkil and Grima, and their sons, Halbjorn Slickstone Eye and Stigandi. Nicknames. Yeah, n- <laughs> nicknames indeed. Uh, the entire family are famous sorcerers or infamous sorcerers, and they soon begin harassing their neighbor, Ingun of Skalbernus. Uh, now, Ingun is infamous. What what do you mean there? More than famous. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> uh, now, Ingun's son, Thor, uh, this is Thor Ingunarsson, right? The the guy we just talked about being stabbed in bed by his ex-wife. Uh, he's also Gudrun, Oslo's daughter's second husband. Uh, Thor travels to his mother's farm and helps her pack up her farm to move away from the area. But before he goes, Thor formally summonses the entire family for sorcery. But as he and his mother and ten other people sail away from the farm, the Hebridians go to work. All four of them climb onto a high platform and begin chanting their spells, and they call up a massive blizzard to sink the ship. Thor and his men struggle to keep their ship afloat and nearly make it to safety, but then a huge breaker, a rock, juts up out of the waves and smashes through the ship. No one on board survives the cold and the churning water, and their bodies wash up on shore the next day. I feel like you forgot something in there, John. Such as? A seal with human eyes. <laughs> the seal is not engaged oh. in an act of violence, Andy. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's he's a very addition to the story. <laughs> That's why they get in trouble, because they're, they're just so overawed by this right. cute little seal. Right. Or they're horrified. Either way. Hey, look at me. <laughs> Ignore don't, the rocks. Don't look out for the rocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Aww. a pretty good candidate. Like, it's a really good candidate. Mm-hmm. Still, you said murdery, yes. No actual blood, though. But the magical well, assassinations in this saga, well, they are impressive. It's solid. I mean, first of all, the power of four sorcerers working together makes this a huge storm. I mean, rocks oh, yeah. jutting up from the ocean floor, driving winds. Right. Seals appearing out of nowhere to mock the people on the ship. Uh, yes. And, the, of course, the loss of 12 lives makes it one of the worst massacres in this saga. Yeah, and for bonus points, we're actually told how many people are on board. Mm-hmm. Thord, Ingun, nine other men, and one woman. The implication is uh, that she's Ingun's servant, but we got the count. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and this saga has a bad habit of sinking ships without providing a passenger list terrible yeah as we'll see that is going to have an effect on the body count for this saga all right so what's your next candidate all right well that's a very strong candidate just in terms of the number of people killed um as we see time and time again kotkel and his family of sorcerers are a force to be reckoned with and they just happen to be involved in my last candidate for best bloodshed mm-hmm. of course they now are. i think that most of I think that most of our listeners should remember this one simply because it's so eerie and unusual for a saga death. It happens shortly after the elderly Hrutz Heliofsen, uh, lover of uh, Gun- Queen Gunhild, uh, dispatches Eldgrim, the thoroughly... Good friend of uh, Queen Gunhild. Oh, friend, I'm sorry. 
I'm going to go back and I'll fix that. <laughs> uh, shortly after the elderly Krutz Heriovsen, longtime friend, mm-hmm. close, longtime close friend of Queen Gloomhild. Close companion. Dispatches Eldgrim, which thoroughly embarrasses Thorleik Hoskodson and sparks further conflict between the two kinsmen. Mm-hmm. Now, seeking revenge for the humiliation, Thorleik, he goes over to Kotkel and his wife Grima, who are tenants on his land, and he asks them to discredit and humiliate Hrut in some way. Well, they agree and immediately get to work stirring up some dark magic. And that night, Hrut's farm is filled with the sweet sound of strange chants. Hrut quickly realizes that a dark magic is descending upon his farmstead, and he urges everyone to go inside. He says that no one is to go outside and that everyone must stay awake to avoid the harm the magic will do. Unfortunately, the whole household, including Hrut, is eventually lulled to sleep no matter their efforts. Except for his 12-year-old son, Kauri. He's only sleeping lightly because this magic is directed specifically at him. And as the saga says, eventually he sprang up to his feet and looked out. And then he went out into the magic and was struck dead immediately. Now, in the morning, Hrut awakens to find his son dead not far from the doorway of the farmhouse, and, of course, this leads Hrut to ride out and hunt down Kotkel, Grima, and their sons. Now, John, this might not have the style and gore of our typical bloodshed candidates, but to me, there's something truly horrific about this magic that sucked the life out of poor Kauri. You know... That episode reminds me of the tale of Thrithrandi and Thorhall. Do you do you remember that one? Thrithrandi and Thorhall, not really, but it sounds like one of the ones we did at the start of the pandemic or around yeah. that time. Yeah, it was part of that batch that we did in April of 2020. Yeah, hmm. uh, it's not. It's but not why the same. Is it similar? Yeah, it's not the same. It's similar. Uh, in that one, Paul of Seether holds a great feast for winter nights, and he warns everyone to stay inside and to stay vigilant against trickery that night. But, oh, like that, in this yeah, story... that sounds similar. Yeah, in this story, everyone eventually falls asleep, except for Thuthurandi, the favorite son of Hall. Yes. That's right, yeah. He hears a knock at the door, right? And he goes outside, like, who's there? What's going on? Yeah, and, and instead of being immediately consumed by dark magic, he gets caught up in a supernatural battle between nine warrior women riding on black horses, yeah. and then nine others riding on white horses. Yeah, and, and these were the Desir of the land, right? I remember this. That, yeah, that's what we determined at the time, yeah. Or the Nazgul, they, whichever. They kill the Nazgul. Well, there's yeah, there's white riders, too. Uh, but they, but he ends up killed by these in this battle, whether he gets involved somehow or right, they yeah, target he, him. Right, mortally wounded. Uh, he lives long enough for his father to find him in the morning, but he dies after explaining what happened. Well, that's convenient. But yeah, I do. I, I remember this, and it, it's interesting but I find the death of Kauri in Lakstala Saga, even though it's much shorter, it's literally what I just read, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's more compelling. It's more haunting. I think for me, it's it's the not knowing or understanding how the magic kills him instead of the yeah. nine riders, you know, coming, or right, 18 right. riders, I guess, coming out. Um, it's something weird. We don't understand how that magic kills him. There's an immediacy to it that is truly mm-hmm. terrible. But, uh, okay, um, well, I guess that's not a repeat. I'm going to keep it as a candidate, yep. even though it's kind of a repeat. No, that's fine. Yeah, though, that's that's a, it's still, I mean, you know, I think we keep it in there. It's a really good uh, one. It, it lacks blood and guts, but it's a really chilling moment. Thanks, but you, you obviously mentioned blood and guts for a reason. I think that I can guess your next candidate. I mean, it's not a secret. It's Alan Twigbelly, right? Of course. 
Uh, so just a reminder, uh, Aun has a dream the morning that his master Kjartan is to be ambushed. I think you missed a joke. Uh, it's Andrew Damas, right? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not one to right. repeat so, the jokes that I've already given you. <laughs> I, got, I, I got it right, though, so I'm Andrew Damas? <laughs> uh, sure, let's go with that. Uh, listeners, is uh, Nostradamus or Andrew Damas the, the better usage of that particular joke? <laughs> <laughs> Let I us know, won't you? They're both wonderful. <laughs> so uh, just to, to briefly recount Alan's story, uh, Alan has a dream the morning that his master is to be ambushed. The dream is of a woman, uh, probably a hamankya or a troll, who appears to him and, without saying a word, cuts his belly open, catches his guts on a wooden platter, and then fills his abdomen with brushwood. But when he wakes up in the morning and tells his friends about the dream, they react with somewhat less than total compassion. They start tickling and grabbing at his belly to see if they can feel any twigs. Uh, and then, later that day, Aun is actually disemboweled in the attack on Kjartan. But that night, when both their bodies are being returned home, Aun sits up and explains that the woman in his dream came back. Only this time, she slit him open again, took the sticks out of his belly, and returned his abdominal organs to their rightful place. Now, if that wasn't already pretty great, there's also the fact that Aun recovers from his belly wound well enough to take part in the revenge attack on Botley Thorlikson the following year, but he does get killed in that attack, and killed for real this time. So, you have a dream evisceration, and then a real evisceration. Yes, and, and then an invisceration, which is right. not a word you get to use very often. <laughs> it's a good word, though, and it's appropriate it here. Uh, and it's a, it's a great bloodshed moment. I mean, you've got supernatural yeah. elements, graphic violence, a bit of silliness, and ambiguous dream interpretation. Uh, and when we get to his nickname, by the way, I'll be talking a bit more about sort of the implications of this dream. It's got it all, really. So, I mean, these are our candidates. Uh, what are we thinking about for a judgment? All right. So, uh, yeah, we've got a handful of good candidates to choose from here. Let's let's review yeah, them so, real quick. All right. I've been writing them down as we've gone. Uh, you've got Breaches Al stabbing her ex-husband Thor. Uh, mm-hmm. Melkorka punching Yorin in the face after being slapped with a dirty sock. Uh, Kotkil and his family wiping out uh, an entire farm's worth of people. Uh, Crazy. Kotkil and family creating a deadly magic that consumes the life essence of young Kauri. And Aun Twigbelly getting his belly unstuffed and stuffed repeatedly. Phenomenal. Where do we go um, with this? John, I... Man, this this is one of those that's really really tough, right? And it's also not tough in some ways. But I, I'm just <laughs> for me, there's I'm a clear front runner and a clear second place. Yeah, but I, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge that this saga, even if in your next our next section you'll find that the body count isn't what you might want it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best bloodshed candidates we've got there are all pretty good. Great. Yep, they're really great. Um, yeah. it. it you know, sometimes we're, you know, we got to stretch a little bit to get a full slate of best bloodshed candidates for some sagas. Um, I'm looking at you, Alehood. <clears throat> but um, <laughs> but this is fantastic stuff. I mean, any mm-hmm. one of them is a worthy winner. Um, this is one of those. Th- this is one of those years when uh, you know you're you're up for the Oscar, but you're up against all the best. Right. Y- right. Uh, and then somehow Tom Hanks wins anyway. Uh, well, in I'm this case, s- Tom Hanks seems to be Alan Twigbelly, doesn't he? I mean, I I don't see how we don't give it to Alan Twigbelly. 
Uh, as I said, I mean, I'm withholding a little bit because I know what's going on with that dream. But mm-hmm. um, it's even by itself, even just on the face of it, that is that's right. good stuff. I mean, to be eviscerated in a dream and then in reality and then to be stitched back together in a dream and then to wake up in reality having been healed. I mean, that's it's hard to do yeah. a lot better than that. For for me, the reason that I think Alan Twigbelly needs to get this one is because it's so memorable. It's the kind of right. thing that most people who read this saga or have listened to this episode, when you say Alan Twigbelly's name, you know exactly who we're talking about, right? Yep. Kaltkel wiping out the entire family, fat, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Kaltkel and the deadly magic that takes Kauri's life, it's tragic and it's terrible and it's weird and it's mystical and supernatural. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, again, lots of great stuff in, in, in this, but Alan Twigbelly. I mean, I mean, it's, you know, within the sagas and I'm emphasizing within the sagas, this is a unique story. And we just said unique is what we're looking for when it comes to best bloodshed. Absolutely. It's the standout. And that's why it wins. Congratulations, Alan Twigbelly. Good job. Um, John, do you want to stuff it in his belly or or you want me to? (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to give it to him in a dream and he can stuff it wherever he wants to. All right. As one of our major sagas, I have to admit, I expected Lack Styler Saga to deliver a high body count, John. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, how'd that go? I mean, well, (laughs) kind of depends on your perspective. If you like a high body count in your sagas, then this went poorly. Uh If you like a sprinkling of bodies across your saga, it went great. Sorry, a sprinkling of bodies. Yeah. The collective yeah. noun for corpses now? <laughs> yeah, for I mean, for a saga as long as Lakstala is, I'd say we got a sprinkling of bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, Lakstala's saga is 6.85 Hrofenkels long. That mm-hmm. makes it the fourth longest saga that we've read after Njal, Eil, and Gretir. And we agreed that there were a total of only 66 untimely deaths in this saga, which uh-huh. earns it 10th place in body count for all the sagas that we've read right between Thord Menace and Wrath the Sly oof right behind Thord Menace <laughs> yeah uh yeah yeah 10th place I mean, that's not surprising I'm assuming Ale Saga has to be number one for body count total that is correct John and uh mm-hmm. we can wrap this Lack Style Saga body count discussion up with a quick calculation okay yeah so with 66 untimely deaths over 6.85 Hrofenkets. We have a body count density measurement of 9.65. That sounds low. That's low, right? Is that low? It's very, very low, John. Uh In fact, out of the 31 sagas that we've read so far, Lakstyler Saga ranks 27th in BCDM. Wow. For reference... Alehood is number 31 because no one died in that saga. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to beat zero. <laughs> but Lockstyler Saga is right there in between Vigland Saga and the saga of Bjorn, the champion of the Hitterdal people, in terms of density of untimely deaths that you'll encounter mm-hmm. per Hrofenkettle. So ranking 10th overall in body count doesn't really help much if your saga is one of the longest out there. Now... To be fair, Njal Saga ranks second in terms of body count, but only 15th in BCDM. Mm-hmm. So longer sagas just don't do well in the BCDM category. 
Well, see, now that's that's the price you pay for trying to develop a narrative and produce some of the world's best literature. Just give oh, us a well. litany of corpses and you'll shoot up the rankings. That's right, right. Uh, all right, how about some nicknames, John? Nicknames. All right, it's nicknames next, which is my opportunity for a well-earned rest as John rambles on in a soothing voice about the names people gave each other in Lockstyler Saga. So, wait, are you asking for a saga thing ASMR? No, I'm just mocking you a little bit, and I'm also oh, going to go right. make a Manhattan okay. for myself yeah. while you talk about these things, but I'll be listening. Fair enough. Oh, good. Just as long as you're, as long as you're still listening. It's very kind of you. Yeah, so I'll good. be listening. Don't worry. Uh, right. So... Give me a second oh, here. Did you not think I really was going to get up? I didn't think you actually... <laughs> I thought you were bluffing. <laughs> no, I'm going to get a drink. All right. All right. Well, so while Andy is off mixing himself a quick drink, uh, this saga was a little light on truly outstanding nicknames. Uh, no no Thora of the Embroidered Hand or Aolf the Beshitten here. And because the saga is set in the middle of the most written about part of Iceland, many of the good names are ones we've already met before in previous sagas. Uh, Thorkel Scarf. Al the Deep-Minded, Ulf the Squinter, Thorolf Blisterpate, Halgrith Longlegs, on and on and on. Great names, but we've talked about them all already. Then there's the usual assortment of basic colors and descriptors. Olaf the White, Thorsten the Red, Thorsten the Black, Thorbjörg the Stout, uh, Sigvat Lawspeaker, Bard the Generous, on and on. Nothing too surprising there. But once we finish sifting through the chaff, we have some pretty good stuff left over. So much so that I had to exclude a couple of really good options. A name like Thorbjorn Pockmarked or Kettle the Lucky Fisher may not have much to research, but would still probably get you a look in in most sagas, but not this time. Andy, may I introduce Stainthor Grossloppy? Stainthor is mentioned only briefly in Chapter 52. His nickname means the Slauper of Groa. Uh, Andy, we have a reference to a deity and a descriptor. This here is a kenning. So, Groa is the goddess of knowledge and a powerful seeress, and those are both properties of Odin as well, so Groa is clearly a significant figure, mythologically speaking. But honestly, since this is a kenning, Groa is probably just meant to mean woman here, right? Uh, goddesses are often used as a stand-in for just woman in, uh, in kennings. Uh, Slaupi, Slaupar, means uh, a good-for-nothing or a layabout, and in case you weren't sure... Cleesby and Vigvison helpfully define this as a term of abuse. So, so our kenning is the layabout of the woman, which I'm taking to mean the mother's sluggard child or something similar. So, uh, Stanthor, lazy mama's boy, essentially. Next, we have Halbjorn Slickstone Eye. Uh, Slickstenaug. Uh, Halbjorn is one of the sorcerous Hebridians we talked about in the bloodshed category. He's the only one with a nickname, but it's a good one. Andy, are you familiar with Slickstones? I love a good Slickstone. You do love a good Slickstone? Do you actually have any idea what they are? Uh, I assume they're stones that are small and slick. Well done. Uh, they're actually a pretty common implement for finishing fabrics in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's a oh. stone or sometimes a glass with a flat bottom, usually a little smaller than a computer mouse. So fabric would be laid flat on a wooden board and then rubbed with the slick stone to create a smoother, shiny look to the material. 
Oh, okay. They're actually, a, they're actually a pretty common find in medieval archaeology. Now, about the nickname. At a narrative level, the name is almost certainly due to Hotbjorn's cursing the land with an evil eye before his death. Right? He sort of lays waste to the land and, like, cuts it. It cuts all the live growth That's off. That's absolutely it. right. Uh, That's... See, that's I, this is why I like the nickname section. One, mm-hmm. we just got a cool little archaeological lesson about material culture. Lovely. Thank you. And then, didn't even occur to me, of course, he's the one who has his eye poking out of the bag, who's able mm-hmm. to curse the land, thus retroactively giving him the name Slickstone Eye, right? Right. Very cool. Uh, now, so, yeah, exactly. Hrut and his, his uh, sons put a bag over Halpbjorn's head, but there's that hole in it they can see through, right? Uh, now, when he casts a curse, that curse is cast on the land and on Thorlik Hoskildsen. Uh, so the name associates the smooth, round stone with a glaring eye. And since I spent a happy hour reading about slick stones and looking at pictures of them, I can also report that they often have a round indentation in their top to make gripping mm-hmm. them easier. Which, of course, makes them look like an eye. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show that. Actually, I'm gonna, I, I can look this up if you want me to, but I have to. Uh, Good doggy. There we go. So I'm showing this to Andy right now. But since this is an audio yeah. medium, you have to look it up for yourself. But they pretty clearly are shaped and kind of look like an eye. Sure. Very uh, cool. So, Hopjorn. Uh, next I we like have uh, Joran Manvitzbrecka. Uh, this is Joran Kettle's daughter, not the Joran who marries Hoskel Dalla Colson and slaps people with socks. Uh, Joran's only briefly mentioned, but she has one of those nicknames. Right? Anytime a nickname is left untranslated in the English language saga, you know something's up. Here's what's up. We don't know. We, we don't know what's up. <laughs> Uh, it's actually not entirely true. Uh, Manvit <laughs> means uh, knowledge or wisdom or sense. It's the breka part that causes trouble. Yeah, the meaning the man's of the word, wit, right? Right. Well, so yeah. So in the the meaning of the word in this context, it's not clear. It means something like hillside or slope. Uh, but it seems to be used here. You actually will see her name uh, translated as uh, wisdom slope. Uh, okay. But it seems to be used here as an intensifier. Something like massive right, or imposing. Uh, mm-hmm. Finner Johnson proposed that Brecca might refer to exceptionally large breasts, but since there's no etymological evidence to back that up, that probably tells us more about Finner Johnson than about Euron. <laughs> so the implication is massive wisdom or genius, but as I say, at least one translation has just called her Euron Wisdom Slope, which is, I would say, the scholarly equivalent of a shrug. Is it uh, possible? Oh, and, and, yeah. Is it possible that she just has a huge noggin? A huge head, yes. No, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> okay. Um, just wanted to check. Right. And by the way, uh, Joran's not the only one with this name. There's actually an Astrid uh, model's daughter in Landama book who's also called Mandelsbrecker. Interesting. Uh, so it's uh, oh, for women. Oh, one more thing about this. One more thing. Mandelsbrecker does show up in 20th century Icelandic writing, including really? in the work of Halder Loxness, where it's, uh, it's actually used sarcastically. Uh, to, to me, sort of the way you, the way Americans will sarcastically call somebody Einstein, Einstein to mean they're being an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, did you almost uh, say Einstein? I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to code switch. Damn it. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> so, 
since since uh, the usage uh, trades on an association with the word genius uh, in that modern kind of sarcasm, we can probably agree with the majority on this one and say that it refers to Yorland's uh, wisdom. Okay, like it. Uh, next we have Erland She's Himala. not going to win. Uh, no, I know. Uh, Erland the Torpid. Uh, Erland's number one makes only the briefest of cameos in the saga, so much so that we skipped him entirely in our summary. Uh, my, I looked at my notes for that episode. There, he's nowhere in there. Uh, <laughs> he comes from sort of an embarrassing lineage. Uh, his yeah, great he's just, grandfather, a, he's just in the genealogy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he doesn't play uh, a role. A, That's why we're skipping. And it's not him. a great genealogy. Uh, his great grandfather is Ospak Osvifson. Ospak was the only one of Gudrun's brothers not to be outlawed for the killing of Kjartan. Do you remember why? No. Because he'd already been outlawed for seducing Asdis Liot's daughter. That's right. He was out of town. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but that was a romance, wasn't it? Uh, Right. So, but Ospak and Aldis had a son named Ulf. And that boy, Ulf, his grandson is Erlem the Torpid. Okay. Uh, so, Cleesby Vigvison translate Himalda as laggard, uh, and they compare it to the German Ausbrüll, fool, right, or uh, klutz. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what we have here is the great-grandson of a shameful uh, assignation that is mentioned offhandedly in the saga as a reason why this man was already outlawed, right, for, yep. for unethically impregnating a woman of the, of the district. Uh, and now his main claim to fame is that he is either klutzy or a fool. So not not the most auspicious nickname, but there you go. No. Uh, now, our next name is another minor figure, uh, Alvin Festergammer, uh, Halter Dog. We actually did mention Alvin way back in Gunnar Wormtongue saga, but this saga adds a nice twist. Alvin attends the Thorsness Assembly in the year of Kjartan's death. And he speaks out against the Oswesons after they're outlawed for the killing. He says, Those men will be treated as outlaws in Norway, too, if Kjartan's friend, meaning King Olaf, is still alive there. And their father, Oswif, shouts back, Well, you won't prove much of a prophet, Festerhunder. Uh, now, Kunz's translation of this is Halter Pop. Which translates, which captures the intended insult in the translation, right? Osif is calling Alvin a low dog on a leash, not a wolfish canine, sort of uh, bound for safety, right? Like Fenrir, right? So a mutt, not a purebred. It's a it's a rare play on a nickname, and those are always fun. Okay, who, who's next? Uh, mm-hmm. So next we have Breaches Alv. Uh, and honestly, there's there's not much to research or explain about this one. The saga does a very good job of explaining why and how she comes by this name. Uh, I wanted to include it for two reasons. Uh, first, it's a unique nickname, right? It's not one that we see elsewhere. Uh, but it's also an example of a defamatory nickname, uh, like yeah. Njal Beardless. There's no suggestion that Al is in the habit of dressing in men's clothes prior to getting this nickname. Gudrun pretty clearly invents the nickname as a way to justify Thord and Gunnison divorcing her so that he can marry Gudrun. Uh, Al then embraces the nickname, takes some of her husband's cast-off clothes, dresses in them, arms herself, and then rides to avenge her honor, sort of in the guise of a male figure, uh, sort of embracing the defamatory nickname in a way that Njal never does. So, 
an interesting nickname for that reason, but probably not a for word. sure. Hmm. Maybe uh, well, we also have. Well, yourself. I mean, but hang on because we've also got a couple of others. Uh, Thorarin Fulisini, uh, Foles Brow. So most people agree that Fulisini means Foles Brow, which is descriptive, but not entirely so. Right? Doesn't really explain why he's called that. The reference could be to something to do with Thorarin's hair falling like a mane. Or, I like this one better, it might suggest an aquiline or Greek nose shape, right? Maybe a long brow and high nose bridge. Uh, or is the meaning more esoteric? Does it trade on some metaphorical meaning that's lost to us? We don't really get enough here, or in Greta's saga, where, where Thorarin also appears, uh, to say anything for certain about him. I, I did say that most people agree on this translation. The problem is, the voice of dissent is a loud one. Einar Svensson, who edited Lakstala for the official Fornreed edition, suggested a translation more like Philly, with the feminizing aspect thrown in for good measure. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have deferred to this idea because, again, you know, when you're the editor for the Fornreed edition, your word carries weight. But I can't find any further evidence beyond people just citing Svensson over and over again. So if someone out there knows uh, more about this, I'd love to hear it. If somebody knows why Fuseni might evoke Philly rather than Fole, uh, I'd like to know. I, I spent way too long trying to work out a definite answer, and I mean way too long. <laughs> but until I hear otherwise, Fole's brow is the consensus choice. Yeah, if uh, people want to know why uh, it takes so long to put the Judgments episode together, oh it's because John's playing with nicknames. For months. Right, because I spent I spend an entire afternoon trying to solve the problem of a guy like Thorarin Fulseni, who nobody cares yeah. about. Uh, <laughs> next, we have, of course, Aun Twigbelly, Aun Hrismaya. Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> uh, first of all, Aun is a rare double nickname figure, which earns points for quantity, if nothing else. He begins the saga as Aun the Black, alongside his brother, Aun the White. And then he brings us Hrismaya. Uh, twig belly or brush belly as his second agnomen. We talked about how he got the nickname in Best Bloodshed, but I want to take a second to talk about the cultural context for Alan's story. Let's talk about Berta Belly Slitter. This is a story Berta that seems to have been around. Yes. Yeah, I know. Do you know this one? Yes, I do. Yep. Uh, so this is a story that's been around for a millennium or so. Uh, Bertha is in the same category as the Krampus or Sinterklaas or Baba Yaga. She's a troll woman who visits bad children, cuts open their bellies, and replaces their stomachs with sticks and trash. Andy, how did you come across this? Because you're the first person I've met who actually knows this one. I came across it talking to you about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just cheating. A little um, bit, a little bit. I, I know what you're going to say because you already told me, uh, but you clearly forgot that you told me. So let's pretend well, like I didn't you know, know, and you can I tell probably, me for the first time again. Right there, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what makes Alan's troll woman a clear analog of Bertha is that uh, once she's done this, once she's disemboweled a child and filled his stomach with trash, uh, if a child improves their behavior, Bertha will return empty out the sticks and trash, and replace the child's internal organs. In other words, she will do exactly what happens to Aun. So this nickname isn't just a quirky little anecdote from saga writing. It's a, it's a mythopoeic trope that would probably have found its way into retellings of Lakstala and that would have been recognizable and enjoyable by the saga's audience. 
right? They would have recognized Aun as an Aniridaniac, uh, a, a Nero dream. Odin, Odin means pain in Greek. So dream painer, right? A dream sufferer, which is pretty mm-hmm. accurate to Aun's situation. Uh, so one of the reasons that Aun's friends start clowning on him and grabbing at his belly is that Aun is basically a grown man who's having nightmares about a child's boogeyman. That's really, really interesting. I, I know where I heard this before. Yeah. It wasn't a conversation you had with me. Uh-huh. It was a conversation you had on the Ormstunger podcast. Yeah, because uh, well, that's what I was that's what I was in Iceland to talk about was exactly. uh, Alan Twigbelly. Yeah. That's why I remember this. So yeah, you didn't tell <laughs> there me. There you go. So our last candidate is Thorhatla the Chatterbox. Oh, I love uh, her. Malaga. Uh it's a pretty straightforward nickname. Thoratla has a small but important role in the saga. She's the one who learns of Kjartan's movements and repeats them to Gudrun's brothers. Then her sons are part of the attack on Kjartan, and later are the first ones killed in retaliation for his death. And we sort of know how things go from there, right? Buckets of blood, back and forth killings between the two families, till the next generation finally finds a peaceful solution. And the inevitability of all of this means that no one person is to blame for the avalanche... But it just happens that Thorhatla is the one who starts yodeling under a snow shelf. Uh, her nickname is pretty transparently allegorical. She's a stock figure in the sagas, right? The the female servant whose careless or calculated words cause trouble for her social superiors. So Chatterbox is an example of a figure who essentially is her nickname and only her nickname. Yeah. Uh, and I said she was the last one, Andy, but even though there's nothing to say about him that we didn't already say in the podcast, I'll throw Gilly the Russian in there because why not? <laughs> ah, John, большое спасибо. Что включили меня? So what do we think? Okay. Um, I've got it broken down to three, but I want to say something about Chatterbox and Slickstone Eye because I think this this kind of thing pops up quite a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the questions that we get asked all the time is the question about whether we believe the sagas are history or fiction and how how do we come to terms with the blending of those two things, right? right. Uh, when we did the slavery talk, that was one of the questions, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I think you have you, – you need to look no further than the nicknames, right? <laughs> because – Someone like Thor Hutla Chatterbox is not a historical person. She's inserted into mm-hmm. the saga to serve right. a certain function, right. a purpose, right? right. And her an nickname belies her purpose in the saga. But mm-hmm. then you're, you're talking about Slickstone Eye as well. And I said that there's a retroactive kind of uh, naming of him as Slickstone Eye. Mm-hmm. But I, we, could, we could also say the author knew from the very beginning of writing his character that he would serve this purpose. Of right? course. Um, same thing with Alan Twigbelly, if we're being honest. And these are these are honestly my three uh, of the people you listed. These are my three favorites, mm-hmm. right? Alan Twigbelly serves the function of his dream. His nickname serves the function of his dream as a literary device more than anything else, not a historical right. thing. So all of these nicknames, and I think quite frequently, the nicknames speak to the fictional nature of the sagas, or they can. At, at many, 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 many points, um, I find that really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. That 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 those little fingerprints of the author are left there in the nicknames. Yeah, and and I agree that nicknames are often where you can find that most clearly. 
Yeah, yeah. But those are my three tops. Um, I feel like you want to give it to Alan Twigbelly, though. I no, I I I have three candidates as well. We have two in common. Um, oh, interesting. I Who's included, your? I had included Aun and um, I had included uh, Huffbjorn, uh, Slickstone Eye. Uh, but I my third was Breaches Alf because it is a unique name, oh, yeah. and I like the way the nickname plays out in the story. Yeah. Uh, actually, if I had looked at my notes closer, I would have put her in as a as a fourth <laughs> candidate and not in any particular order, mm-hmm. um, which makes it kind of difficult because I – okay, here, here's where I'm going to break it down to two. Mm-hmm. I'm going to for, forget about Thor Hotla Chatterbox. I think she's hilarious and interesting, but, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Uh, Slickstone Eye, also intriguing. I like the nickname and it rolls off the tongue. I love the way that it – you know, the English translation works. Um, it mm-hmm. works really well for me, but Breaches Owl's nickname, the way that it comes full circle in the text, is worthy of a nickname award, in my opinion. But so too is <laughs> Alan Twigbellies, and Alan Twigbellies yeah. again is so damn memorable. I know. I I think for me that's ultimately what what decides it is that if you if you had someone paying some attention to the names in the saga and you asked them yeah. to remember a nickname from the saga later on, I feel like. Alan Twigbelly is probably going to be the one they remember. I tend to agree. It's and it's it's a dang good nickname, fictional or not. And, it's a yeah. good one. And even though I, it kills me that Breaches Alf keeps ending up sort of in second place in these categories. Uh, I, I think I think Alan's name is just it's a great name and it's uh, it's as you say it's so memorable that I don't know how you don't don't give it to it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So uh, I, I'm all go. for it. Alan Twigbelly. I mean, this is, we said he was Tom Hanks. Look at him go. Look at him go. <laughs> Congratulations, all right, on, Tom Twigbelly. <laughs> on to the next category. Notable Witticisms. In the Notable Witticisms category, we recognize one saga character, or sometimes the saga author, with an award for the most clever or thoughtful line. Mm-hmm. The timing of the delivery is an important factor here, so the context of the line do play a role, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> a, a proverb on its own probably isn't going to win, but a right. proverb placed cleverly into the right moment can have an impressive impact. Uh, but whether we're yes. talking about a proverb or a poem or a well-placed one-liner, this is an award for those who know how to cut with more than just swords and axes. Well said and well written. And I want to start with a line that cuts deep to the core of medieval Icelandic sensitivities about their place in the world. Early in the saga, John, and I think it's like the first or second chapter, Kettle Flatnose calls a meeting with his family to discuss leaving Norway and escaping King Harold's cruelty. And when his sons, Bjorn, that is Bjorn the Easterner, and Helgi suggest going to Iceland, Kettle responds, I do not intend to spend my old age in that fishing camp good line now i acknowledge that this isn't what we traditionally consider a notable witticism but i wanted to oh, at least okay. highlight it here it, it's not bad but i want to highlight it here as a line that made me chuckle because mm-hmm. every time i read it i chuckle it's one of those sharp and dismissive lines that undercuts the honor and authority of a whole country rather <laughs> than just a single individual 
and it's it's also brimming with irony given how everything turns out for Kettle's family, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. that's my first candidate. What's your first? Uh, okay, well, my first candidate comes from uh, Joran Bjarnadotter, uh, the disgruntled no, she's wife. She's very active in this episode. Yes. Uh, well, she's the, she's uh, uh, the disgruntled wife of Hoskel Dalla Colson. Uh, so this is not uh, Joran Mamensbreka. This is the other one. Uh, Joran has to put up with a lot being married to a guy like Hoskel. Uh, most yeah. notably when he does come home from a business trip to Sweden, having bought a mute Irish slave woman as a concubine on the trip. You know, sort of an impulse purchase. Yeah, something like that, Yeah, only with a person. Euron uh, has <laughs> eyes and ears everywhere, though, especially among her husband's followers, because she's no fool. Uh, when Hoskell returns home, she immediately confronts him about the new girl. Uh, Hoskell is forced to admit, you, you, you probably think I'm mocking you, but uh, I do not know her name. And Euron responds, Really? Unless the stories I've heard are lies, you, you must have spoken to her enough to at least learn her name. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's the moment that Hoskell realizes he's miscalculated. Mm-hmm. Or... I guess. Well, it would be if his if his head weren't uh, solid bone. But yeah, <laughs> and uh, this was uh, one of the uh, candidates recommended on Discord by Wilhelm Dad Joke. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, Joran actually has a couple of good lines. Uh, as you know, uh, Hoskeld and Melkorka, the Irish woman, have a son, Olaf Peacock. Uh, and about twenty yeah. years later, when Olaf is moving to a bigger farm. He makes a point of parading his livestock past Papa Hoskold's farm after asking Hoskold to come out and watch the parade. Hoskold, who's just bursting with pride at his son's success, runs inside to tell Joran about it. And she responds, Yes, with his wealth, the slave woman's bastard should be able to buy a good name for himself. <laughs> Joran doesn't get a ton right. of lines in the saga, but man, she makes her words count. She sure does. But, uh, John, which which of those is the actual candidate for Notable Witticism? Are you nominating both? I mean, I take your pick. They're both solid, so I say we include both of them. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, now, my next candidate comes from a time in young Olaf Peacock's life when he was being pressured by his father, Hoskold, to find an appropriate wife. Hmm. And Hoskold has a very particular woman in mind. Thurgirth. The daughter of Eil Scotland Yes, that's right. And as you'll recall, Olaf was quite nervous about the whole thing, mainly because he was a little uncertain about his status in the community due to his mother's somewhat complicated history, right? Right, but Hoskell is only pressing his son to marry someone as high status as Thorgrith, Eil's daughter, uh, because Olaf had recently returned from Ireland, where he confirmed his royal genealogy. Yeah. Hoskold is proud of having sired a princeling, and he wants to strike while the <laughs> iron is hot. True. But Olaf isn't so sure that the rest of Iceland will see him in such a positive light. Mm-hmm. And his fears prove true when Thorgerd's initial reaction to her father's mere suggestion that she might marry someone like Olaf is to point out that he's a slave girl's son. And this humiliates Olaf. Yeah, it's not a great start to the courtship, but it it does get better for him. It does, yeah. He tells his father that he intends to see the process through now that it had begun. Um, And I I really like that aspect of him. He's like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's humiliating, but 
I think we can get this done if I take control right. of the situation. Right. You're, and you're screwed at, this up, at this Dad. point, yeah, you screwed this up. Let me go and show her what a man in a scarlet suit looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he drops a proverb at this point. He says, when one wolf hunts another, he may eat the prey. Now, it's he pays a visit way of to Ayla's courtship, but all right. You know, it's a very masculine approach to things, I yes. think. Um, so he pays a visit to Ail's booth at the All Thing, uh, and he meets with Thorgerth. Uh, but before he goes, he dresses himself in his finest clothes. He wears the suit of scarlet that was given to him by King Harold. He wears a shiny gold-plated helmet, and he wears his fine sword that was given to him by King Mirkjartan, his his grandfather. Right, he, he's dressed to impress, in other words. Absolutely. Uh, and he cuts a very impressive figure. You can imagine him walking through the all thing and everyone kind of turning and looking at him with his very, very fine clothes. Absolutely. Now, when he arrives at the tent, he's welcomed in by Ail Scott the Grimson. And soon he finds himself seated next to Thorgeth on the crossbench. Now, thinking that his bold approach and fine clothes will sweep her off her feet. He's thinking, she hasn't seen me yet. She doesn't know what kind of man I am. <laughs> he sits down looking looking quite fine. And he says, you must think it bold of a slave girl's son to dare sit down beside you and strike up conversation. But uh, Thorgeir <laughs> looks him up and down and she's not impressed. Mm-hmm. She delivers a quick and biting reply. And you must think you've done more dangerous things in your life than talk to women. Ouch. Yeah. Now, King in Green mentioned this one on our Discord page, and he says that we should recall when reading this line that, as he says, in this saga and many others, talking to certain women is decidedly perilous. And <laughs> Olaf has just come back from chatting with Queen Gunhild. Uh-huh. So... <laughs> Talking to a woman like Thorgareth, that can actually be more dangerous than it might seem. Mm-hmm. See, women like Thorgareth and Gudrun, they actually prove this to be true. So, whatever the case, John, I love Thorgareth's line here. Mm-hmm. It puts Olaf in his place, and it lets him know that she's not the kind of woman to be impressed by fancy clothes and big talk. Right, as we said uh, in the summary, she's as imposing and as forceful as her father, Ail Scott Grimson. Yeah. In some ways, maybe even more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So she's great. I, I really love her. Uh, John, do you mind if I go again? I've got another good one for us. Sure, go for it. All right. Uh, now, my next candidate doesn't need much setup because I think everyone's going to remember how Gudrun pressed her husband and brothers into attacking Kjartan. Now, sadly, it falls to Botley to deliver the killing blow against his foster brother. And as he's returning home, Gudrun steps forward to greet him. And she asks him, what time of day it is, to which he replies that it's mid-afternoon. Right. It's an odd question. I mean, first of all, yeah, I'm sure she can tell what time it is just as well as he can. I, I agree with you. Right. And and besides that, given that she knows where Butley and her brothers have been and what they've attempted to do, what time of day it is should hardly be the first question on her mind, which, which suggests right. she already knows the outcome and is just setting up a clever line. Yeah, that sounds about right. And she does have a good line set mm-hmm. up here. She says, A poor match they make our morning's work. I have spun twelve ells of yarn, while you have slain Kjartan. Now, 
This is a deceptively simple line. I mean, at first glance, she's simply comparing the products of their morning work. Now, she's been sitting at home spinning yarn while Boltley was out killing one of Iceland's finest men. Set up for Thingman. <laughs> Comparatively, <laughs> Boltley's been doing the more important and impressive task to what she's been doing, which is just spinning yarn, which uh, all women do. Yeah, but you said it was deceptively simple, which implies yeah. there's more to this line than Boltley or even some readers might perceive. Yes. Yeah, many, many, many scholars and bloggers and even several smarty pants folks on our Discord page have Where read Woodward's references. of pants. Only smart pants are worn over there. Correct. <laughs> but they all agree that Gudrun's reference to spinning here... Uh, fuck, 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 fuck. Um, well, many of them have read Gudrun's reference to spinning here through the lens of Norse mythology, mm-hmm. drawing a connection between Gudrun and the Norns who weave the threads of fate. Now, when read this way, Gudrun is laying claim, either directly or indirectly, to the slaying of Kjartan. His death is the result of Gudrun's active agency in the lives of men, the choices they make, and even the outcomes that those choices lead to. So, if Kjartan's death is the final scene of some kind of tapestry, Gudrun is the artist who wove the individual strands and brought that plan to fruition, created the tapestry. Exactly. Uh, And as you said, there's been a great conversation among several people on our Discord page about all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't go all over all of it here, but I would encourage anyone who's interested to jump on the Discord page and search for the word Norns, N-O-R-N-S, stick you right to the spots you need to be. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's even a suggestion uh, there and elsewhere that Al the Deep-Minded and Thorgirth are also Norn figures, uh, and that along with Gudrun, they complete a kind of triad of fate weavers in Lockstall Saga. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I really, you know, we should give some credit here to our Discord uh, participants. Uh, Wilhelm, Dad Joke, uh, Lane, Weaver of Mirth, and Elf the Inkstained for leading that conversation about Gudrun and the Norns. It's good stuff. Um, and again, there's lots of great scholarship on the subject as well. Um, now, as always, uh, I'm going to have the Discord invite link in the show notes uh, we've got around, uh, well, actually, we have, I think, more than 300 people over there now. And mm-hmm. the more this community expands, the more variety there is to the conversation. It's a great place to go if you're a fan of the sagas or Vikings in general. Uh, right. To go and talk about the things you love. Right. Even if you're indifferent to us. <laughs> it's still a great place to talk I about I mean, sagas. if they're indifferent to us. If they're they, indifferent to they us, how are they still... probably haven't this far still... in the episode. Yeah, no, it's, that's obvious. Yeah, I mean, I would have yep. shut it off by now. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, All right, uh, what's next? Uh, well, maybe they're cleaning their house and have something on just in the background. Uh, in which case, <laughs> you missed a spot under the couch. Uh, well, my my next uh, my next candidate is a, another kind of throwaway moment. Um, I, I, oh, I soon gotten obsessed with the little asides in this saga. This one comes late in the story when Thorkell Eilson enters the narrative. So that's uh, Thorkell, the fourth husband of Guthrun. Yes, although not yet. Uh, at this point, he's merely a okay. man who'd like to be husband number four. But oh, first, let's deal with a bit of a one. family problem. Uh, a relative mm-hmm. of his, Aid Skegison, has lost a son in a fight with two brothers named Njal and Grim. Uh, Njal is also dead. drowned the same, the same uh, uh, summer. But Grim is living as an outlaw in the wilds. And people are whispering that Thorkell, as a prominent member of the family, ought to do something about that. And so he does. 
He borrows the famed sword wow. Skofnung, an invincible and magical blade once wielded by Hrolf Kraki himself, and he tracks Grimm to his highland campsite by a lake. He then utterly fails to kill Grimm because he does everything wrong. One might call him unlucky. <laughs> Among other things, he tries to sneak up on Grimm with the sun at his back so that his shadow is clearly visible uh-huh. and Grimm, recognizing this, dives out of the way. Yeah, he's not sneaky. Uh, rolls a natural yeah. one on dexterity. Uh, now, things he get sure worse does. from there. There's a brief wrestling match that ends with Grimm suffering a sword wound to the wrist, but he's just so much stronger than Thorkell that he's able to out-wrestle him one-handed. Mm-hmm. Thorkell ends up pinned to the ground with Grimm threatening to kill him. And Thorkell says only, Well, it's apparent things have turned out unluckily for me. <laughs> You've got to appreciate the saga's love of the understatement. And I always like to slip in yeah. one of these sort of these these casual understatements when I get a chance. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it, this is a great example of what the sagas do well. Um, all right, uh, my last one comes from late in the saga when Thorkettle Eilfsson, that is Gudrun's fourth husband, who we've just been talking about failing to kill Grimm, uh, is now in Norway. And King Olaf finds him one morning high up on the church's roof, measuring out the length of the beams, the cross ties, the joists, and even the supports. Uh, this surprises King Olaf Haraldson, who is known as King Olaf the Saint, uh, who asks him if he's planning to make a church in Iceland on such a grand scale as this one. And when Thorkettle tells him that this is exactly what he's planning to do, the king suggests that maybe he should chop two L's off from each beam, and he'll still have the largest church in Iceland. Well, Thorkettle's offended and tells the king to keep his timber if he doesn't believe him, but he's going to build his grand church one way or another. In other words, I don't need your stupid timber. Uh, right. I go get some somewhere else. I'm going to build right. the church that I want. I, 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 now, I, at this I, I point, don't know where some wood in Canada I can get. That's right. Yeah. Well, the New World or uh, whatever it's called. Um, now, at this point, King Olaf is fed up with Thorkettle, but he does maintain his composure even as he insults Thorkettle. Remember, he is King Olaf the Saint. Mm-hmm. He says, You're a man of great worth, Thorkettle, and of no small ambition either. Of course it's absurd for a farmer's son like you to compete with men like us. Jeez. But it is not true that I begrudge you the timber. If you should manage to build a church with it, I think it will never be large enough to contain your pride. Sick burn by Olaf. Uh, he, he's yep. right, though. I mean, Thorkettle's plan to build a church on the scale of the one in Nidoros is kind of a grand conceit, right? I mean, this is a, it's that's that's making a big plan for a man who's oh, got yeah. to import every bit of timber he's going to use. Oh yeah, and on the scale of all of the buildings in Iceland, it would yeah. be like building a skyscraper in a tiny village in America, right? Like it's <laughs> it's almost ridiculous, right? Almost. And that's the idea here. Almost ridiculous. Uh, we should also point out that Olaf's comment reveals something 
of his own pride <laughs> as well. Um, and this is, again, written by an Icelander, so that's important to remember. Uh, the idea that an Icelander should have it in his head to present himself on a scale anywhere near what a Norwegian king can do, that, that's simply ridiculous to King Olaf the Saint. But, yeah, you and know. Just, and to follow that idea, right, you left out the part where Olaf uh, wraps up with an observation about uh, Thorkell's impending doom. He says something like, mm. if I'm not mistaken, you'll have a hard time building anything with that timber in the near future. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Olaf isn't playing around. And You're going to die, He's boy. right. You know, I mean, remember, Olaf the Saint is the kind of guy who can, like, uh, transport himself across oceans and, and pop in and save someone from a Draugr. You know, I mean, he's pretty Andy, cool. Not to be, not to, not to brag, but uh, I can do that, too. I use a plane, you but can? I can still do it. It takes a lot longer. I th- I feel like um, <laughs> you wouldn't arrive in time to save the guy from the Draugr underground. I that's fair. That's fair. But through the power of Christ, well, all things are possible. Hmm? <laughs> Magic. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, so so the Grand Church, uh, as you suggest here, uh, it won't ever be built. Mm-hmm. Not because the timber doesn't make it to Iceland, measured exactly to recreate that church in Nidaros. Well, uh, it simply won't be built because Thorkettle will drown in a shipwreck, bringing the timber to his property, as you heard in uh, one of our last two episodes. I can't remember which one. Right. No, it's a, it's a tragic, I think it was the last episode, a uh, tragic ending for Thorkettle, but also uh, you know, that, that that lumber finds uh, all kinds of uses in, in, in Iceland because, of course, it, it swims ashore on its own and is found by yeah. various people who watch the shipwreck and then steal the lumber. All right. Tragic ending for Thorkettle. What's next? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, that's the last of the candidates. Uh, Do you have a sense of who should win? Uh, Give me a quick recap to help me out here. Honestly, that's a good idea. Okay. So, uh, according to my notes, we have Kettle Flatnose saying that he doesn't want to live in that old fishing camp. That seems like Mm -hmm. ages ago that we talked about that. Yep. Uh, Joran doubting that Hoskull doesn't know Melkorka's name. We had Thorgerd. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting Olaf Peacock in his place when he tries to impress her. Uh, there's a second uh, we had, line uh, about uh, the illegitimate son being able to use money to buy a good name for himself. That's right, yeah. And Guthrun welcoming Botley home with a comparison of their morning's work. Thorkettle saying that things have turned out unlucky for me as he finds himself lying beneath the man he intended to kill. <laughs> and then King <laughs> Olaf questioning whether any church Thorkettle builds could uh, contain his ego. It's a lot of pretty good ones there, John. What do it you is. think? Um, I mean, if I'm making a list of my top three, I know you like to do that whenever I'm uh, presenting. Yeah. Uh, my top three include, um, it's got to be Olaf questioning uh, whether Thorkel can hold his ego inside a cathedral. Yeah, that's uh, in my top three as well. Uh, it's got to be uh, Thorgirth, uh putting Olaf Peacock in his place. Also uh, in my top three. Yeah. And doing yeah, well so far. Which is great. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, Joran uh, saying that uh, she can't believe that her husband doesn't know the name of the slave he purchased and then slept with. Yeah. <laughs> is also pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one for me is tied with Thor Kettle saying that things have turned out unluckily for me. Unluckily for me. I mean, that one. 
Thorkettle's line as he finds himself under <laughs> Grimm yeah. is just so classically saga no, that's good. That's to me. Good. Yeah. You know? Um that that one's really, really great. But I think both I think we both agree generally from what I from the tone of your voice mm-hmm. that uh that King Olaf's line and Thorgas line to Olaf Peacock, those mm-hmm. are really top twos. I, I almost hate to dismiss Gudrun's line because it's it's great as well. It, it is. Uh, There's but something it's, it's, really special. I think Gudrun's line. The problem with it as a witticism is that it requires such a sort of a broader understanding of the saga and of the mythology behind Norse literature in general. It loses something as a as a bon mot. Yeah. Whereas you don't really need any further context to understand why Thorgirth telling Olaf that it's not impressive that he thinks that he's t- done more important things and more dangerous things than talking to her. Why that's a great line. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I agree. So uh, we have a kind of a top two here. Mm-hmm. Really hard for me to choose this one because King Olaf's line is so witty, and it comes so late in the saga that you just really right. appreciate it at that right. moment. If if that makes any sense, if you've read the saga, maybe that makes sense to you. But when you get to that moment, it's such a pleasant surprise <laughs> that it really, you know, it, there is that. It, it, it's it's a. It's wonderful for that but regard. How, I agree. however, yeah, yes, uh, no. Well, I'm, so I'm going to make the case then for Thorgrith. Uh, the 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 first of all, it's just an early indication of her personality, right? And yeah, uh, later in the saga, she's she's going to prove herself to be a worthy adversary for Gudrun Oswald's daughter, and a very important yeah. kind of uh, foil for her. Uh, mm-hmm. That this kind of early indication uh, that she will take nothing from nobody uh, is. For me, at least, it's a it's a character defining moment. Uh, not to mention, it's a great way of summarizing that courtship in the sagas can be a blood sport. <laughs> yeah, if not exactly. actually with weapons, it's a you know you'd better have your wits about you if you're going to court someone yeah, and, like Thorgirth. And the reason that I'm going to choose that one as well is because I think it's a good summation of this saga as a whole. Mm. Right, this is a saga about women and their experiences. Of course, right. it's it's through the perspective of men very much, but the women's experience is central to the saga, and that mm-hmm. line, man, it, it it encapsulates the whole thing really nicely. Well, and as as you said, as was pointed out on Discord, uh, the fact that uh, talking to women in this, in this saga can be quite dangerous uh, yeah. suggests that there's sort of multiple layers to the meaning of this line that uh, that I really appreciate. So I say I say Thorgrith wins it. Uh, agreed. All right, Thorgath, come on up and get your prize. We're going to move on to another category where it's a little less positive. <laughs> oh, glory. All right, for this category, we're going to try to find some of the most dastardly doers of deeds in this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, it's been a long saga. There's been a lot of actions, many of them somewhat less than honorable. Yeah. Uh, Andy, what do you got? Well, I, I want to start by saying this. For a saga as long as Lockstyle Saga is, the list of candidates for outlawry was not as easy to compile as I would have thought. Yeah. Now, in terms of numbers, I would have expected to see a lengthy list of candidates, but uh, that's not the case. Right. Now, what I was suggesting uh, is that, yeah, we have a lot of people who behave dishonorably, perhaps shamefully. Exactly, yeah. But not a lot of illegal behavior. <laughs> right. So uh, why don't we start with the first candidate mm-hmm. that we should consider, uh, and that's Killer Hrop. Which one? 
Well, not the crazy guy who claims to be named after him. Uh, the original <laughs> one, the the OG right. killer prop. The one, the one and only. Yeah, uh, he he's among the first villains of the saga. Is he really that bad? Well, you mean the the guy who is introduced as a guy who pushes his neighbors around and tells them that they can expect trouble if they yeah. if they treat anyone better than him. Yeah, yeah, I I know who he is. Uh, the, the same guy who gets sick and demands that his wife bury him upright in the kitchen doorway so that he can guard his his house and haunt anyone he doesn't like, which he does, by the way. Mm-hmm. He he haunts the land, he kills most of his servants, and he chases his own wife off the property. The guy who drives his own son mad and then, I think, into the grave, that guy? The guy who, who has to have his body moved and then his revenant chased off by Olaf Peacock? That guy? I mean... I'm not claiming he's a great guy. <laughs> okay, well, if it's if it's not Killer Hrop, then uh, who do you want to consider for outlawry? I mean, I think we should probably talk about the Hybridian sorcerers. Okay, yes, I think that's a a, a good yeah, that's a good start. All right, <laughs> I mean, it's the whole crew, right? Uh, Kotkil, uh, Grima, and their kids, Stigandi and Hapjorn Slikstonai. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they begin the saga by harassing Ingun, their neighbor, who's an older woman who lives alone. When she gets her son, Thor, to help her move away from their abuse, he quite reasonably summonses the family for their campaign against his mother. In retaliation, the four of them call up a seal and a storm to destroy (laughs) Thor's ship. Yeah. And when he proves too skilled a sailor to be swamped even by their eerie seals and maelstroms, they cause a jagged rock to burst up from the seabed and punch through the ship, killing 12 people. It's an eerie seal, but a fun seal, though. I mean, it's a great seal, but it's still evil. Yeah. And remember that then uh, Hrod Helgefsson sort of gets on their bad side because uh, Thorlik sort of asks them to teach him a lesson after he gets involved in Thorlik's life without permission. Mm-hmm. And their response is to attack his farm with magic, lure a 12-year-old boy out into the darkness... And kill him in one of the more disturbing magical deaths we've seen in the sagas. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Andy, if this crew doesn't deserve the full penalty of law, I'm not sure what the law is for. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, okay, so Kotkel and his family, they are pretty serious candidates, John. But I, I need to ask you this. Mm-hmm. Have you have you considered Eldgrim? Eldgrim. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I have a vague idea of who Eldgrim is. Is, but I wasn't that impressed by him at the time. How bad can he be? Uh, I mean, not that bad, really. Uh, he's just the guy that attempts to steal Thorlik's horse and gets killed by Hrut for his trouble. That guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I so I, I do remember him then. And the answer is no, I haven't considered him. Yeah, me neither. Oh, good. So why is this coming up? <laughs> <laughs> well, just because we, I mean, we're trying to list out the bad guys and All show right. that there, there aren't really that many villains yeah. in the saga. Yeah, well, I'll take my turn. Uh, the next one I have is also a minor figure. Uh, Thorolf Asafsson. Oh, The, the yeah. brother who okay. Gudrun relies on for stealing Kjartan's sword, King's Gift. Mm-hmm. Right. First of all, obviously theft is a big no-no culturally, especially when you are a guest in a person's house. Yeah. Which he is. Uh, but then also consider the consequences of that act. Thorolf's theft of the sword leads to growing animosity between the houses... Uh, a confrontation between Botley and Kjartan that sours their friendship further, and indirectly leads to future escalations by both sides. And most significantly, Kjartan regards the sword as sullied by the theft, and so he stops wearing it. Yes. Right. This is the sword yes. that was prophesied to keep him safe if he was wearing it. 
Instead, at his last stand, Kjartan is reduced to using a sword of such shoddy quality that he has to stand on it to unbend it during mm-hmm. the fight. Right. And I think the whole point of showing that bent sword in the final battle is really to remind us that he could have been protected by King's Gift had yes. not Thorolf stolen it from yes. him. Yes. But realistically, John, it was Gudrun who sent Thorolf to commit uh-huh. that theft. He wasn't acting out of animosity towards Kjartan. He was simply obliging his sister by embarrassing the man that she saw as having jilted her. I mean, that's fair. And and we should also remember that it was probably Gudrun who steals the beautiful headdress, the gift from King Olaf's sister. Mm -hmm. That's the bigger escalation. And maybe Gudrun should be considered a candidate for outlawry. I mean, okay, maybe. But it is Thorolf who actually burns the headdress. Yeah. So he is sharing in the guilt. I, I agree. But uh, but if we're being honest here, Gudrun is the one who almost single-handedly provokes, sets oh. up, and helps to execute the slaying of Kjartan. It's definitely questionable behavior, but mm-hmm. we do see that kind of thing all the time from other men in the sagas. And sometimes we even praise them for defending their honor in similar ways. So, uh, right. you know, what are we supposed to do? Well, then it also it also fits into, you know, the usual escalations back and forth. I mean, this is, remember, a response to... Garten yes. having locked them in their house for three days and forced them to defecate indoors. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. It's. I mean, at that point, you know, nobody's behaving well at this point. No. And also, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to call your bluff. If oh. you want to go ahead and outlaw Guthrin Oswald's daughter in this saga, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you go right ahead. Well. And uh, everyone can send their mail to Andy. <laughs> well, I mean, I- I'm more worried about the pitchforks and torches that would be circling my house if we outlawed her. <laughs> and and also, to, to be fair, uh, I don't think we should be outlawing also, Gudrun, just not, yeah. despite her obvious character flaws. There are others more deserving of outlawry in this saga, and I think we've considered some of them already. Do you have any more? I mean, I, we're kind of scraping the barrel here, but before we make a decision, I want to point out that uh, King Olaf is also guilty of a few uh, pretty heinous crimes in this saga. King Olaf? Yeah, Olaf Tryggvason, the one who converts... Kjartan and Botley to Christianity, not the later Olaf. Wait, 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 wait. He, uh, he essentially seizes some of Iceland's best and brightest and turns them into political hostages, refuses to let them return until Iceland refer- converts to Christianity, I, and in Kjartan's case, even forbids him from leaving after the conversion. Uh-huh. It's not great. I mean, I have a couple of issues with that. First, he invites them to stay for a little longer than they intended. All right. All, uh, you know. he, he refuses to allow them to sail out unless they convert. Well, that's because the party's still going on. Uh, <laughs> somebody somebody check Andy's purse for Norwegian coins. <laughs> well, but but listen, Olaf Tryggvason may have some questionable methods, mm-hmm. but he's a Christian king. He's doing God's work. <laughs> and as you know, he's Norwegian. Right. Uh, we, we can't outlaw him from a country whose laws he never agreed to follow. Oh, I Remember, know. Remember, all outlaw candidates have to be Icelandic or at least right, or at least subject to Icelandic law. Yeah, the Hebridians, yeah. for example, yeah. are subject to Icelandic law. Yeah, I know. I just wanted on the record that Olaf was naughty. <laughs> he was a very naughty boy. Uh, but but here's the thing: this is one of the longest sagas that we've covered, mm-hmm. and and there's just not that many dudes or dudesses for us to consider for outlawry. Well, because ultimately, this is a story. That, the tragedy of this story is not good versus evil, right? Mm. It's it's yeah. three protagonists who clash inevitably and tragically with each other, there isn't really a villain in this story. That's right. And so I think it actually is, it speaks to how well the saga deploys that trope of the love triangle that we don't really have a villain to speak of. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if anyone's a villain, it's fate, right? Sure. Be- because fate puts all of them in such a bad position. Yeah. Uh, drives things forward. But since we can't outlaw fate, how do you feel about <laughs> outlawing Kel and Grima? Yeah, I feel pretty and... good about outlawing a family of, of child-murdering sorcerers. Yes, <laughs> yes yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's probably, we're probably safe there. Yeah, all right, I agree. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Not a big surprise there. Kel and his family, the whole family Excellent. of sorcerers, uh, are outlawed. See ya. Thing man. Okay. The moment of truth, John. We've spent the last year reading Lockstyler Saga and analyzing its characters, and we even took time at the end of each chapter to consider individual characters a little bit more closely and to offer our thoughts on them, mm-hmm. which was a cool thing to do in this saga. Yeah, it was a little messy at times, though. Well, yeah, especially with Carton. Well, <laughs> especially with Carton. <laughs> yeah. But I think we at least managed to give each of the major characters in the saga you know, more time for discussion and analysis than we have in almost any other saga mm-hmm. we've covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now it is time to select our Thingmen. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, well, well, I'm wondering why you're listening to this episode and how you managed to get to this point in it without uh, <laughs> turning it off. Well, maybe they... Maybe they chose to start their saga thing journey with Lockstyle sagas. This is just the first ah, judgment episode. Fair enough. That would make sense, and I think that's a good possibility. Um, and if that's the case, or if you need a quick reminder, a refresher, since it's been a while, John and I both select a single character from the saga to be our thingman. Initially, the category was intended to allow us a chance to speak about the saga's protagonists and the characters that we felt made the best impression throughout. The only rule is that the character has to be a role player in the saga. And they cannot be a royal figure. So no kings and queens allowed. So uh, people like Gunhild got to stay on the bench, mm-hmm. as to King Harold Greycloak and the two King Olafs. Now, at this point, I think that we we both have slightly different approaches to choosing our thingmen. We're both trying to fill our hall with the saga's best and brightest, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. our scales are weighted differently. Uh-huh. And that's okay. Except for when we're in the quarter court yeah. and we get to point out the flaws of each other's well, approach. But uh, yeah. An easier task for some of us than for others. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll speak a little bit about my approach again when it's my turn, but but that'll have to wait. Now, sadly, John won the coin toss on this one. And and they all applauded. Uh, no one's applauding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he gets to choose first. So, John, what do you got? What's your approach to this category these days? And who are you choosing for Thingman from Lockstella Saga? Uh, okay, look, this is sometimes a very easy category. Um, we've read sagas where there's pretty clearly only one or two good picks for Thingman. And sometimes, sometimes only one. Well, right. And sometimes it's even clear which one of them should be first pick, which one of them should be second. Or yes, there's only one decent figure entirely. And the person who doesn't win the coin toss is left scrambling. Yeah, that's usually me. And, and if we oh, go by so saga good. language, I think John is, <laughs> is a man marked by luck. Oh, And Andy now. may have just a little less luck. But uh, look at look at my Hall of Thingmen. It's now, full now. of the saga's best and mm-hmm. brightest men and women yes. and dogs uh, and trolls. Yes. Luck is an explanation for talent by the untalented Andy. <laughs> uh, right. The, the, the thing about this saga is that there's at least half a dozen viable candidates for yeah. Thingmen. Yeah. Uh, and I mean truly viable. Like, any of them would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to start with a proposal. Assuming neither one of us is anything crazy, I think we just accept that both of our choices are likely to be fine. Oh, I agree. Uh, so yeah. when you choose Gunnar Thridrandabani or what? Alan the White, I promise not to make fun of you. Wait, who's who's Gunnar Thridrandabani? 
<laughs> He's the outlaw at Goodwin and uh, uh, Wedding. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I know who Alan the White is, but I did not recall the obscure Gunnar Tidrandavandi. Yeah. He's not being considered by me, I, I must say. <laughs> uh, well, for me, uh, notwithstanding guests at the wedding, uh, the choices come down to five or six major figures. Okay. Uh, we don't have time for me to list all the reasons for or against taking Olaf Peacock. Mm-hmm. Thorgrith Ale's daughter, uh, or Kjartan, or Botley, or even Gudrun Oswald's daughter. There are real arguments to be made for them all. Mm-hmm. And even if there are a few points against some of them, I certainly wouldn't be ashamed to have any one of them grace my hall. Uh, yeah. But this is a massive, sprawling saga about a massive, sprawling family. And as we argued back when we began this ridiculous, year-long project, it's really the story of the many descendants of one of the most important and successful figures of the settlement generation. Mm-hmm. And I have to let that guide my choice. Andy, when the story of Iceland's beginnings are told by the Icelanders themselves, there are four people who are generally regarded as being the backbone of that story. And maybe the preeminent figure among them is the only woman of the group, the wise and proud matriarch, Alv the Deep-Minded. It is Alv... Now, does that mean that Unur the Deep-Minded is still available for me to pick? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she has a pseudonym occasionally, yes. Uh, it is, it is her careful dynasty building that creates this saga's entire story. True. From Norway to the Hebrides to Iceland, Alf spends a lifetime patiently crafting an unparalleled success story from the raw material of her life. Well She's put. a proud figure who builds a financial and political legacy that is Lakstala Saga. And as mm. for that legacy, Alf is the great-grandmother of Haskell Dalla Colson and Hrut Harrelson the great-great-grandmother of Olaf Peacock and Thorlach Huskelson and Holgerth Longlegs, the great-great-aunt of Oswith the Wise. Add one more great, and we're in the generation of Guthrun and Kjartan and Botley and Snorri Gothi, all of them proud to carry on the legacy of their ancestor, Alv, into the 11th century. Hmm. I don't think there's a worthier person in this or maybe in any saga to be an honored guest in my hall. Welcome, Alv the Deep-Minded, Take your place among the luminaries of my team. Wow. she She's a giant in saga literature yeah. <laughs> and Icelandic history, as you as you said. It's a, it's a surprising but very powerful choice. Mm-hmm. So, and it, John, it's so surprising, in fact, that I didn't, I didn't expect you to choose her. It's a legit choice, but I, I, I got to say, I didn't expect it. I mentioned earlier that Stefan and I had a conversation about Thingman for this saga. Uh, we uh, both agreed yeah. that Alv was probably the best choice in this saga. Interesting. Uh, we, we also decided on who I should pick if I didn't win the coin toss. I'm not going to tell you who that is yet, but after you've chosen, I'll tell you whether you have agreed with Stefan and I. Well, well, I'm very curious. <laughs> and, I, you know, I have to be honest, you've kind of made my job very difficult here, John. See, I know I have. Your choice leaves me with a lot of, no, I'm going to say all <laughs> of the major characters in this saga to choose from. So uh, I guess it's my job to go through them and evaluate them just a little bit. So let's start with Kjartan. He, he's an obvious mm-hmm. choice. He's the saga's golden boy. And we reviewed, or I guess I should say I reviewed his strengths and <laughs> you reviewed his weaknesses in our summon section on him. And I'm going to stick by my argument that he's among the saga's greatest heroes, if not the best hero of this saga, at least in potential. But I know you don't like him and you're certainly not alone in that. I think there is an argument to be made that 
he's a bit too self-involved and a little too unaware of what's going on around him, which, you know, that's fair. But it sounds to me like you guys would get along great. Hmm. I'm not sure I understand your comment there. Uh, <laughs> but Kjartan's not alone. I mean, there are a lot of other saga characters that we've praised and even brought into our yeah. halls who suffer the same flaws as Kjartan. But you're not taking him. Uh, well, maybe, but maybe not. Ooh, the, t- <laughs> the, the tension and suspense is building. Now, I suppose one could consider Kjartan's foster brother and slayer, Boldy Thorlikson. I say one could, but I wouldn't. I find Boltley to be a disappointing <laughs> character all around, which I talked about in his summons. You see, he, he fails to get involved where he should, and then he chooses to act when he shouldn't. He's not my kind of guy. But I do quite like his son, Boltley Boltlison. He's a much more intriguing mm-hmm. candidate to, to a guy like me. You see, Boltley has all of the positive attributes of Kjartan, and he even managed to hang around a lot longer in the saga. He's the kind of guy that impresses on first sight. Uh, do, do you remember, John, the, the lengthy description by the shepherd from when uh, he was young and attacking Helgi Harbinson? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a guy, right? <laughs> now, he's a bold young man who establishes himself very early in his life with the slaying of one of his father's killers. That's Helgi. He handles himself very well in every encounter that he's in. He's clearly Gudrun's favorite son, and he builds a reputation for himself abroad among Scandinavian royalty and rises through the ranks of the Varangian Guard. And as if that wasn't enough, he's the son-in-law of Snorri Gothi. And, if this saga is to be trusted, the only man that Snorri trusts to inherit his property and run it properly. So in my opinion, Boltli Boltlison surpasses Kjartan as the best hero in the saga, and he's the kind of thing any Gothi would be proud to have. So, uh-huh. Boltley's on table for my thingman. But, uh, John, this isn't just a saga about heroes. It's a veritable smorgasbord, orgasbord, orgasbord of awesomeness with a different flavor for every type of character that you could want. That is a that is a uh, that is a very specific reference that no one under forty is going to get. Oh come on! Do you do you really think kids aren't watching Charlotte's Web anymore? Because Charlotte I'll Templeton, move it along. All right. So you took Auth. And in my opinion, she's not even the most impressive woman in the text. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's my opinion, man. Uh, I, now, I would be foolish if I didn't consider either Gudrun mm-hmm. or Thorgareth. Mm-hmm. It would be ridiculous, in fact, to not consider them. Uh, we talked a lot about Gudrun, and there's an excellent argument for choosing her as Thingman from Lakstyla Saga. In fact, many on our Discord page made a great argument for that and have me seriously considering it. Mm-hmm. She is dealt a bad hand by fate, and yet she perseveres. She asserts herself, defends her honor boldly, and even shapes the world around her as well as that of many of the male characters we've encountered in the sagas. That said, if we go back to my statement earlier about how we approach choosing Thingman, I have to say I'm still troubled by who she is and how she approaches the problems she encounters as a woman in medieval Iceland. I hold... All of my Thingmen to a certain standard. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and I think I've been fairly consistent. <laughs> fairly, not 100%, from the start uh, about choosing men and women and a dog and a troll and etc. who <laughs> prove themselves to be loyal, to be noble of character, to be moral mm-hmm. and good and exceedingly talented in something, whether that's intelligence, social prowess, combat or mercantile mastery. Guthrun, I would argue, is as much the creator of her cruel fate as she is the victim of it. And her jealousy and her thievery and her sometimes cruel nature, they're, they're just not the qualities that I seek, typically, in my Thingman. So while I recognize her talents and I appreciate her strength of character, 
I I can't take her. And I, I know that many of our listeners want one of us to choose her. And in all mm-hmm. honesty, I'm s- still tempted to. Haven't made a decision yet. But it would be out of character for me to choose someone like her. Now, I also mentioned Thorgerth, the daughter of Eil Scott Grimson and the wife of Olaf Peacock. She provides a very useful contrast to Gudrun. Because you see, both women are strong-willed and know how to get what they want. But Thorgerth stands out more for me. I admire Thorgareth for her ability to soothe Ael's anger and his depression in Ael's saga. And I love how she handles herself in Lachstyler's saga throughout the text. Whether it's putting a young Olaf in his place, but still being open to falling in love with him, or whether she's riding out with her sons to pursue the revenge for Kjartan against Boltley and encouraging her son to land that final blow. Thorgareth is a force to be reckoned with, and she gets what she wants. And, then, and she protects her honor in the same way that Gudrun does, but I think in a better way. There's a good argument for choosing Thorgareth, and she does fit the mold of my Thingman far better than Gudrun. And while there are other characters to consider, I'm going to close my list of candidates with Olaf Peacock, the son of Hoskuld and Melkorka, the Irish princess, turned slave. Not only is his pedigree impressive, he's one of the most extraordinary characters in the saga. John, remember on his way to Ireland, he catches the eye of King Harold and Queen Gunild. Especially Gunhild, in fact. <laughs> but rather than take a place in Harold's court as he's offered, he instead proceeds to the Western Isles to find King Mirkjartan, his his grandfather. And he immediately impresses everyone upon his arrival with his quick wits, situational awareness, and charm, and even battle prowess. During his visit to Ireland, we're told that he fights alongside his grandfather and distinguished himself so well in battle and in giving advice that King Mirkartan not only consulted with Olaf in all things, he even offers him the throne as his chosen successor. So Olaf has the stuff of kings, John, but his humility and good sense keep him on the right path all the way back to Iceland. Along the way, he stops in Norway. He receives more praise and some beautiful gifts from the king there. And then in Iceland, he marries Thorgerd, Ale's daughter, as we covered. He, he runs such a successful farm that he can stretch the livestock from one farm to the other as he's moving. And he even defeats Killerhrop's Draugr. But he's not just a capable warrior. If I wanted that, I would be taking Kjartan or Boltli Boltlison. Olaf proves himself to be humble, clever, and wise throughout his time in the saga. And just like Njol, Olaf is an excellent advisor to his sons and friends. And... He manages to maintain peace, more or less, in very, very difficult times. It's not until his death that things kind of pop off again. So I could go on and on about the strength of Olaf Peacock, uh, but I'm going to stop here. He impressed us when he was in Ale Saga, and we have seen him elsewhere. And we have talked about, well, if we hadn't picked <laughs> these other guys, we would have picked Olaf. Um well, here he is on a platter in Lachstyler Saga. And as much as I appreciate the other candidates, especially Thorgareth and Boltley Boltlison, well, there's just no way I'm letting the great Olaf Peacock slip through my fingers. Not only is he welcome in my hall, John, I hear he's got a ship full of timber to help me build a bigger and better hall for our parties. And you know how Olaf likes to party. Wow. So welcome aboard, well, Olaf Stephane, Peacock. Uh, you and I agreed that Thorgareth was the, the best pick left on the table after Alf. Mm. Uh, Andy's gone for her husband. Uh, so maybe she'll stop by his hall once in a while. Well, I hope so. Or maybe she'll stop by mine and visit her father. Well, I think she'll be going back and forth between our two halls, which could prove useful. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't believe we've seen the last of her either, so maybe we'll uh, maybe one of us will yet snap her up. Excellent. All right.
Final Rating. All right, it's finally time. We are 13 or so months into this thing. Uh, it is finally time for us to have our last word on this saga and move on with our lives. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I went first for, uh, choosing a thingman. And so Andy gets to go first with his final judgments. Andy, what do you think? Mm. Okay. So I, I just spoke for what felt like 20 minutes on the difficulty of my thingman choice. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be cruel and unusual for me to embark on a lengthy speech concerning my innermost thoughts about Black Styler Saga. I feel like you're going to muscle through uh, though. John, I know you've got complicated feelings about this saga, and I trust that you have done your usual and uh, prepared an extensive review of the saga that considers many of the strengths and weaknesses that I would highlight myself. And I'm sure that I will agree with most of what you have to say. For example, I expect you to highlight the awkward placement and insertion of some of the episodes that are stitched into this saga to provide some background on characters or to reveal... What happened to them after their role in Laxala Saga should have been finished, like Thorgil's Hotlesson. So, sure, the threads between episodes show at the seams sometimes, but there is at least a logic to the inclusion of those episodes in an otherwise very well-integrated narrative. So I think the difference in our scores, if there is any, is going to come down to taste and feeling. I think that this is an incredible work of literature. And while it may not be as cohesive and compelling as Njal's or Ale's saga, I think it's a beautiful piece of art. And it places the female experience at the center in ways that we've only glimpsed in other sagas. This is the story of Un, or Auth the Deep-Minded. It is the story of Vigdis, and of Jorun, and of Melkorka, and of Hrepna, and Thorgerth and Gudrun. They all have a voice here, and they all play a central and active role in this narrative genre that usually places the male experience at the center. And for that move alone, this saga is worth its weight in Hrofenkels. Mm-hmm. Cute. But, but it's also an engaging narrative with fascinating characters who get involved in complex situations that force us to ask big questions. Questions about gender roles, questions about family... Questions about marriage, about revenge and violence, and questions about fate and faith. I mean, the list goes on and on. Better scholars than myself have waxed poetic about the literary, artistic, and cultural value of Laxdalis Saga. And I'll refer you to nearly any book written about the sagas, and you'll find plenty there to testify to the quality and substance to be found in the pages of Laxdalis Saga. John, it's a 10. For me, not even a question. All what do right. you think? That's, I mean, uh, I I appreciate that. I know I, I always begin by saying I want to keep these brief, but like you, I really mean it this time. And we've we've said so much about this saga. We have, yeah. Uh, and there's still so much we could say about it. It's, it's a mark of one of the great ones, I think, that I end them feeling like, like now I'm ready to start from the beginning and do justice to the story. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I think we're all ready to move on to a new story. So I'm just going to quickly explain my final rating. Okay. It'll be a surprise to no one that this saga is going to score high. It's a masterwork. Right? It's a big family saga that tells a few stories very well. 
No one who has read it can forget the story of Gudrun's defiant refusal to compromise her pride and self-regard, even at the cost of her own happiness. Or the strange mixture of petulance, arrogance, love, and spite that compels Gudrun, Kjartan, and Baltly to destroy one another. This story's height, I think, comes in a three-part climax spread out over its second half, in three mm-hmm. brief moments. Kjartan throwing down his sword in refusal to fight Botley, who kills him and then holds him sorrowfully as he dies. Gudrun welcoming Botley home by comparing her weaving and his violence. And finally, Botley Botlison asking his mother that famous question and her enigmatic answer that she was worst to the one she loved best. All three moments are excellent examples of genre convention being used for artistic effect, but also extend logically from the personalities the saga builds over its length. This saga presents one of the great love triangles of Western literature from any age, with three relationships that all feel equally significant, with flaws that emerge naturally and that each contribute to the violence that tears them apart. Mm-hmm. Rarely has a story's ending felt so tragically avoidable and yet so tragically unavoidable at the same time. Preach. In the course of the now 31 sagas we've covered, I've given three tens and two near-perfect nines. My trifecta of tens went to Njal Saga, Eil Saga, and Gisla Saga. The nines, by the way, were Greta Saga and Erbidja Saga. I don't take a ten to mean that a saga is perfect against some imaginary and objective standard of quality. I'm a jaded old professor, and claiming that a piece of literature is objectively flawless just sets my teeth on edge. Instead, as I've said before, I prefer to think of each saga as having its own entirely subjective ideal to measure it against. I want to think about what this saga is trying to do, and whether I think it does it well. Hmm. I think this saga does what it does very well. But it does sometimes include things it doesn't need to, and moves into digressions that don't always work. Lockstall's best moments are apparently digressive. Uh, think of the apparently unnecessary story of Helgi Harbinson's young shepherd and his bizarre attention to detail as he describes the men approaching to kill his master, or Gudrun's showdown with her fourth husband over the fate of Gunnar the Outlaw. We actually need those stories, whether to heighten narrative tension or to round out our understanding of an outstanding saga figure. But there are a few too many passages that don't serve those narrative purposes, that feel like interpolations of another storyteller, or like vestiges of story elements lost from the narrative as it was passed down to us. Any number of scholars have made this point, particularly about the first third of the saga. Remember Hrut's showdown with the would-be horse thief Eldrim? Remember Hoskold's strange and somewhat forced feud with Hrut? Remember Thorolf the fisherman killer you mentioned earlier? Probably not, because once we're through those chapters, they fade into half-remembered background against the far more Mm. compelling master narrative of Gudrun Oswestadr's dream-foretold life and her relationships with Olaf Peacock's son and foster son. But those minor plots, which might charm me in an Erbidja saga, feel intrusive and disruptive in this one. I've said before that the yardstick I measure by is how well a saga does what I think it's trying to do, and I think Lockstalla falls just a little short of its goals at moments like that. Hmm. Also, and this maybe is the thing that finally decides me, I don't buy the sudden extreme Christianity at the end of Gudrun's life. It feels forced. It undermines, for me, the end of the saga just a little. Gudrun is a weaver of fates, including her own, 
Remember we talked about the degree to which she may be shaping her life with the supposed dream that requires interpretation. This enthusiastic embrace of a fate, that, or a faith rather, that tells her her fate is in the control of an omnipotent god seems a little suspect given what we know of her throughout her life. Yeah. Ultimately, I think this is a better work overall than something like Erbidja, but it's been less, less well served by its centuries of tellers than Yal Saga. It belongs among the greats without question. I've never given a 9.5 before, but I think that's where I have to put this saga. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I hear all that. And like I said, in, in my uh, in my final rating, it, it comes down to a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. For you, those, those interpolations, those episodes that are kind of we, where we see the seams, mm-hmm. those feel forced to you, and therefore you need to you need to dock the saga. Dock is strong. Uh, you know, to me, nine point five is still a very, very, very good saga. I I agree completely. Uh, that that it's a great score. Um, yeah, I, I to to me, all of those episodes, I'll say on first read, sometimes I can be wondering to myself. Mm-hmm. Why, why this? Why now? Right? right. But and and that was especially true as we were going through this saga as slowly as we did. Mm-hmm. Like we went through doing three to five chapters at a time for this podcast, mm-hmm. and reading it in that way, that stuff stood out way more to me. That's probably fair. Than when I went back to read it before the judgments, as I always do. And read it as a cohesive narrative mm-hmm. from start to finish. And when I did that, having read it before, everything lines up pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, something like Thorgil's Haltlesen and his, you know, the scene where he loses his head and, like, the fall. Why, like, why are we following him right, right. to the all thing and, and right. following his story? Like, that one to me stands out as something that is forced in. And yet, I understand why we want to follow that. Because the saga spent so much time with him. Right. And well, and remember right? that the saga makes it clear that they're doing this as a lead into a saga of Thorgo's Haltlesen that uh, has yeah. not been passed down to us. This is what I mean about not right. being well served by the story as it has come down to us through the ages. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So I think I all I'm saying here is, again, it, it comes down to a, a feeling and a mm-hmm. taste. And we're, our, our scores are essentially the same. They're pretty darn um, close. You're saying this isn't quite a Njal or a an Ale saga or even a Gisli saga, but it's dang close. And I'm saying uh, I think I think it's got enough there. It's just it's different. Mm-hmm. It's an and it's different enough in an interesting way for me to say this is a perfect 10. It's mm-hmm. a great saga. It's well constructed. And I love all of the questions that it asks its audience to consider uh, in many ways. Questions that are more complex as a for the human experience than something you might find in some of the other sagas. So, uh, I think again, both great scores. But, I think uh, um, that, I think that's true, and I think one of the things that we never did really discuss with this saga, and that we could, if we wanted to, do an entire separate episode about, which we won't, by the way, we won't, uh, <laughs> would be the degree to which this saga is shaping itself according to the motifs of continental romance literature. Like yeah. in, in ways that many of the sagas are not doing or aren't doing as overtly. 
this yeah. saga is a tragic love triangle in the model of that continental model. The same way we yeah. talked about the uh, the warrior poet sagas, as often doing. Yeah, uh, it's only I, an yeah, element it's so, here. It's not the entire plot, but it's it's uh, it's a significant yeah. portion of what we what we read. I I almost talked about that in my final mm-hmm. rating, and 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 yet as I started to kind of think about that, I thought, well, it's it's so distinctively an Icelandic saga. Yes. You know, like, I, I want to talk about it. It's romance conventions, and you can. And there's lots of great articles and, and you know, book chapters on, on that subject. But, man, it, it's it's really not that. It's mm-hmm. it's distinctively in the Icelandic, the sagas of Icelanders genre. Um, but yet it does some interesting things that even, I think, in terms of, like, the, fr- the, f- the fronting of the female experience, mm-hmm. that even the romances don't do that well. No. That's where they usually you know? fall down, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's always the the damsel, or you know, there, there are things you can say about the the, mm-hmm. the continental romances that are interesting from a female perspective, but this does even more than those for the female perspective. And yeah. again, that that's why it, for me it's got to be a ten because it's so unique in thirteenth slash fourteenth century literature mm-hmm. to see the kind of things, the questions that it's asking, the experiences that it's sharing, the philosophy. Uh, that we find in here, it's just, yeah. it's, it's so great. But I mean, I agree with all of that. I push back on the idea that it's the only saga that does this, though. I mean, if you think way back to Eric the Red Saga, right? mm-hmm. we talked about at the time about the the fascination of that 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 saga has with its female oh, characters, yeah. right? And that it really shapes the story of the exploration of the new world as being the story of women, uh, mm-hmm. in a way that you know, again, most sagas don't, and the and in a way that Greenlander Saga very clearly tries to erase. Oh yeah, uh, I, I then, agree with like we're agreeing with each other a lot. Right. I agree with you. Right. So I this think, one doesn't more. Yeah, this, but this one goes to eleven. I think, <laughs> but I think there is you know that that uh, I would actually like to see more attention paid to Eric the Red Saga as a saga that is interested in the stories of women. I think when we will talk about Lockstyle Saga as being the only saga focused on yeah, the that's incorrect. Of women, I often feel like, well, but what about Eric the Red Saga, which isn't an obscure mm-hmm. saga at all. People read yeah. it. I don't know why more people don't recognize it for what it is. Yeah, but e- and even as you as we go through the variety of sagas we've 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 discussed, thirty one uh, sagas now. Even when the male is at the center, there's almost always not always, but almost always an acknowledgement of the female experience. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's a positive angle on that or or, or not is right. is right. You know, up for up for debate, but there's an awareness of it that is unique to medieval Icelandic literature, and yeah. I I really appreciate that. But uh, all right, John, that that's the end. We did it. That's yeah. that's Lockstyla saga. We came to praise Lockstyla and to bury it. And uh, I, for one, am looking forward to what comes next. Uh, which is uh, do we? Well, I'm going to bed. It's it's late. Oh. I'm going to bed. But after okay. that. We're planning to return one more time to the world of the story to cover the Thauter of Botli Botlison that usually follows mm-hmm. this saga in the manuscripts. Yeah, because you all collectively said to yourselves, hey, we need one more episode about these people, <laughs> right? Uh, and then after that, we're moving on to our next saga, which uh, for those of you who want to get a head start, will be the story of Havard of Isfjord. Yes. So it's not one of the more famous sagas, but as you'll see, it's got some unusual stuff going on and we're looking forward to covering it. I'm just looking forward to doing something different. It's going to be great. It feels this like is actually, forever. I will say, this is actually one of the... When we started doing this uh, 10 years ago almost, uh, Harvard was one of the sagas that I was looking forward to bringing people's attention. 
because I feel like Excellent. it's one of those sagas that nobody people have just not heard of, and it's it's got quite a lot going on in it. That's really that's fun. Absolutely. Now, in the meantime, let us know what you think about the sagas that you're reading now, or the conclusions that we reached tonight. Who would you have chosen as Thingman? Did we miss any important candidates for outlaw? I, I can't. I, I don't know who. Yeah. But did, if you if you know, I mean, let th- us know. I feel like there's. I feel like somebody's going to point out to us that there's some like serial killer in this saga that we just forgot about. <laughs> like we really just well, I mean, that one. can anybody be worse than Colt Kell? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, and I, we also, you know, we we spent a year talking about the saga, but maybe we missed something. What what else did you want to hear about in this saga? And uh, how would they tell us all this, Andy? Well, you can uh, you can join. I would highly recommend if you want to have actual conversations with intelligent people, go to our Discord page and us. Uh, look, and us, we are there. I was just participating today, uh, but on on our Discord page, uh, I'll include the uh, the invite in the show notes if you want. Uh, go in there, give yourself a nickname, and get involved in the conversation. Uh, but if if you're not a Discordy, uh, maybe you're a Facebook or an Instagrammer where we are Saga Thing Podcast. And you can also reach us on, yes, we're still on Twitter. We had long conversations about whether we should be. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Twitter is Saga Thing Pod. For the present, Twitter is Saga Thing Pod. Until something better comes along, that's where we're going to be hanging out. So look for us there. Right. And if, uh, if, if all that doesn't satisfy you, just, you know, put pen to paper, write your own saga, and maybe we'll review mm-hmm. it on here. <laughs> yes. Please note that we will not be doing that. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's late, and uh, I've got a new saga to read. Oh, excellent. Well, we are going to be back soon with Boltley's Tale and the Saga of Hava of Isaviort. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Shaft. Uh, right. Yeah. So coverage. Stop talking about Shaft. Uh Okay, so Shaft. Uh, Shut your mouth. Savior of the universe. No. Dun, dun. No, no, no. That's not Shaft. No. Uh, uh-uh. He'll uh, save every one of us. I'm tired of my mouth and the things it does. <laughs> <laughs>